Welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and on this episode, we are sitting down with uh, who I call and think of as a troubadour of Kankakee County. Oh, well, that's... When- <laughs> That's high praise, Sam. Thank you. <laughs> Let's uh, welcome Matt Yeager to uh, the podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's just in my eyes. Mm-hmm. You're the... I, I think... Fe- I feel like we had this conversation on Facebook at some point. Or maybe it was one of the little radio interviews we did. I can't remember. But I feel like we had that conversation about you being a troubadour. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't use that term, but I suppose that would be a better term than any if you are talking about what it means to be a songwriter and uh, telling stories, telling stories about your life. And so, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like, I feel like a, you're just overall a troubadour because no matter what, you are always doing something, whether it's been one of the many different bands you've been in or you're ripping solo gigs or, I mean, you're doing it like it's, it, you're, you have to make money, like, you know, so you're going to play your songs, but you're also going to play the popular catalog from correct that everyone loves and knows from the radio and, or, uh, you know, Spotify, I guess nowadays. (laughs) That is definitely a delicate balance that has to be that a lot of musicians of my ilk would have to, you got to decide at some point what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And I mean, there's, there's so many options to be had, but you do have to make that choice. And uh, so, yeah, I I've chosen to give the people what they want to a degree while also trying to uh, insert my art, along the way as well. And especially as a, an acoustic performer playing solo gives me a lot more flexibility depending on the environment where I can, you know, slide some of my music in there. But, it, you know, if you're in a beer soaked bar on a Friday night and it's 11 o'clock, you better be giving them the hits, you know? <laughs> right. You better be uh, playing, uh, you know, freaking. well, I, I'm sure you do. You probably do play free bird because everyone asks for it. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, have you played a show where no one has shouted that out <laughs> in the crowd? Well, I mean, it, it does happen once in a while, but just think, once in a while. Well, I think well, there's an important, uh, commentary that goes into this. So one of the things that I do at my solo shows when I'm playing by myself at a bar, um, 
I have the, I carry these books with me that contain all of the songs that I know how to play. We just refer to them as the books. And there's like 750 songs in all the different styles and genres, including my, my own material is also in there. And then the first two pages, I, I wish I would have brought a book. But <laughs> yeah, I was going to say we should have brought a book. The, the first two pages are the rules in the book because I do <laughs> so, these shows. So the, uh, hold on. Before uh, you get the rules, are these for people to actually look through or <laughs> are these rules for you? Or do you like set these books out and you say, here, I want you to look at these books. But first, you have to read all the rules on page two. In, uh, <laughs> in a perfect world the requester would show up at one of my shows with their group, probably belly up to the bar and get a couple of drinks and then secure one of the books. If they've never been to one of my shows, you open it up and the first two pages are the rules in case they're like, what, what do we do here? Well, what is this? Oh, yeah. What do we Here's do with guy, this book? Yeah. You know, I want to hear some songs, but I don't know what he knows. I don't know what he knows how to play. So I have streamlined the process by giving the listener the entire catalog of what I know how to play. But it's not a situation where I want you as the listener to sit there and shout at me all night because that would take forever and it's very distracting and very disruptive to the show. So what are these rules? Okay, I'm, so, I'm very interested to know what, because I, 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 I apologize, Matt. I don't think I have seen a solo it's okay. Matt Yeager show. It's, it's I, perfectly fine. I, I've seen, I, I saw uh, a, a little bit of Southside Social Club at Correct. Oktoberfest this last year. I, I was able to catch Fun a little party. bit. Yeah, because, you know, we, uh, Kankakee Podcast had a booth mm-hmm. set up. And I'm, I'm usually there anyway. It's my hometown, you know. Right. Um, but we had a booth set up there. And so um, I remember, I think I was going to find dinner or something. And it was during the time that you guys were playing. So I caught a little bit of the set. And I remember hearing... I remember hearing Fallout Boy, which yep. I was very surprised. To. I'm like, they're playing Sugar. We're going down swinging. I'm like, wow. Like, I like I knew that there was a huge catalog, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I I apologize that okay. I have not seen you solo it's yet. So that's fine. that's why I'm asking these questions. I don't. Um, I certainly don't take a, you know, uh, uh, what do I, want? I don't take attendance at the shows, and I, I'm certainly not making mental notes in my head like, wow. As a matter of fact, Jake hasn't been to a show in a while. Like, you're I'm busy. not doing his podcast. He doesn't come to my shows. You got, you have several jobs. You got, you know, family and stuff. And I, I certainly am not, you know, keeping tabs on your presence or lack thereof at the show. Well, so it's perfectly fine. Well, I mean, thanks, the door man. is certainly always open. Yeah. If you ever had some time and you were curious as to how this situation worked, you're more than welcome to come out. I, I mean, it needs to happen. It needs to be, especially with, I know your busiest time is when the weather gets warm. Oh, yeah. So, you know, with with spring just around the corner, I mean, I'm going to have to put that in my, uh, you know, people have like their summer bucket list or yeah. whatever. I'm going to have to put that on my summer bucket list to say, see Matt Yeager solo. <laughs> Yeah, so the rules. Yes. I think I want to say there's like maybe five. Like I haven't looked for a little while, but I'm going to try to remember off the top of my head. I know the very first rule is you're allowed to make as many requests as you want. Oh, okay. Like this is not a one request per person show. You can make as many requests as you want and you can write more than one cuz like the books have all the songs I know how to play and then on the there's a front flap and on the inside of the front flap are these little white pieces of paper, kind of like karaoke. You write them down, and then I have this little bucket that sits right next to me. 
So you write down what you want to hear and you set it in the bucket. And you're, you can make as many as you want. We've got, or I've, I've got people that come to the shows and request a ton. Like they'll put 30, 40 requests in there and just yeah. sit there all night and go, let me hear my song, dude. <laughs> you know what I want to do is when I come to your first show, I'm going to write down just a album, <laughs> a, just a whole album of, of something and put it in. See if I know. can see, see if yeah. you can trip me up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, they, they, uh, the rules come by as do's and don'ts. Okay. So the first one is do make as many requests as you want. And then the don't is do not write down titles and artists that are not in the book. Do not write down titles and artists that are, and it keep, I keep saying that. And each time in, in the book, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and it's in all caps. And it's basically me yelling, do not write down titles and artists that are not in the book. <laughs> you know, I, I can relate to that coming from a radio background. You know, you get, I've gotten callers or people on social media where like working on, on WFAV, let's mm-hmm. say, I'll get listeners that request country songs. <laughs> and I mean, of course, yes, there are those what we call crossover sure. hits where there are some country songs like that wind up on a top Florida Georgia line or something. Yeah, yeah. that's a that's a great example. Um, <laughs> but they'll request like the most countryest <laughs> song ever, you know, or they'll request like I had a I swear to God, one guy one time requested Volbeat. Oh, Volbeat. And Volbeat is like. Proggy kind of rock band, yeah. very yeah, heavy. You know, heavy, heavy would be a good word. And I had someone request that on WFAV, <laughs> which is a pop station. Sure, you know, it's a it's a hot pop station, <laughs> top forty station. There's no way I'm going to play Volbeat. There, there's no way I'm going to play. You know, Garth Brooks. I mean, so yeah, it's a, so I can totally relate I get to you, you know, a, like what you know. We're looking at the 20 after the hour. Uh, we're going to get you some Drake, followed up by some Dua Lipa, and then coming up next is Volbeat. Volbeat? <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, the people that know Volbeat that are listening, and then the people that don't know are like, what is that? What in the world is that? Yeah, um, I, I get, but like, what happens at the shows is, I'll just tell you right now, like, this will be a, a no spoiler here, but nobody ever reads the rules. Like, I'd say probably... I'm so shocked. Less than 10%, maybe less. Some people do, and they'll... they'll Because the rules are, are written in sort of a kind of a cheeky, humorous way. It's definitely written from my perspective and um, sort of my personality. It's, it's, it's fun, and I, I, I'd like to think that they're humorous rules. It's not meant to be taken seriously. And people that have caught on to that can be like, I, I really enjoyed that. Well, then what happens is you get the joker... That reads the do not request song, and then you get a bunch of those mm-hmm. from the same person because they're just being a complete jerk yeah. about it, you know. <laughs> so that's yeah, that 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 would be the first rule is you're allowed to make as many requests as you want, and then the the don't rule is don't write down titles and artists that aren't in the book. It never fails. I'll still pull out, you know, Gordon Lightfoot or stuff that I don't know, and there'll be people that just and they 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 don't mean anything by it. They just don't read the book and they don't read the rules and they don't. They just think, hey, this guy uh, knows every song ever written, so I'll just pu- I'll just pull out the most obscure song ever. <laughs> they see your posts on Facebook <laughs> and you talk about, yeah, I just uh, just got another hundred songs added to the book, and I'm like, man, does this guy sleep? 
You know, does he do this in his sleep? Is there like a, a hypnotist or does he like put <laughs> headphones on at night and just gets like subliminal messages, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I do listen to a lot of music. That's that's true. Uh, I'm trying to remember. The other rules are all uh, very they're all very important. Like the second rule is you're uh, freely able to uh, sing along. You can get up and move around if you want. You can encourage your friends to join you in all the festivities. But what you can't do is try to get up and sing or come up and be like, yeah, my cousin's here and she's like really good at singing. So you need to get her up here and do a song. Or my boyfriend has been playing guitar for like 14 seconds and I want you to hand over your guitar and let him do a song. So those type of things do happen from time to time as well, where people will think that, you know, they come in with a group of five or six people and be like, hey, you know, Johnny over there is a pretty good player. Yeah. Maybe, maybe get him up and do a tune. And- it's just like going to family gatherings over the years. The first thing that happens, right? Especially when you're a teenager, right? And I'm sure this happened to you. Well, well we haven't gotten into the, you know, the, the early days of, of Matt Yeager yet, but I'm assuming you probably were playing as a teenager, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's time for the Easter gathering with the fam <laughs> and so-and-so learns that you're now playing electric guitar and they're like, Oh, play some for us. Come oh, on. My, my mom. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I know now looking back, it was probably just a, a source of pride for them to just have a have kids that were, you know, me and my brothers, we all played instruments and they were very happy and proud. But it did sometimes wind up being like that. It was just like <laughs> as children, we became a source of amusement and entertainment for our, our parents. Yeah. And then we'd have a family party and be like, OK, Matt, go get the guitar and play for all the family. And then they all ask for something that you don't play or I would be 16 years old playing something that I'd either written or learned and then be forced to play that for the next 20 years of my life because that was sort of the inception of the musical performance. So, hey, play that thing. Remember mm. we were at that party and you played that song? I'm like, I I don't even know if I remember that song anymore. Yeah. Well, you, that's what you played. And I'm like, I know, but I've learned a lot more since then. Yeah. Can and I I've play you seen... something else I've learned, please? <laughs> so something yeah, that I like more. I love my family very much, and I don't mind having that role in my family. Yeah. But it's certainly some humble beginnings. Mm-hmm. It's a lot different these days, you know. Now, you know, with my family gathers and, you know, everyone's having a couple of drinks, I'll pull the guitar out, no problem. Sometimes sure. I'll even have a book with me and throw it out to my family and be like, pick whatever you want. I'll play whatever you want. But yeah, <laughs> having to be downstairs with my friends and having, you know, my mom call me upstairs and be like, go get your guitar, play a song for my friends. Like, that. It wasn't always. <laughs> no, it's wasn't it's, always what I wanted. <laughs> it's so intimidating, too, you know. Um, but getting back, I'm I'm sorry. I know we're going all. Over. I I'm I'm the one who's getting you off track. But um, but going back to the rules, though. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's no. Hey, can yeah, my boyfriend like he's really good at <laughs> pr- uh, like singing Prince. Can you you know? Um, so I'm sure you've gotten into those situations. What when did because that rule is in play for a reason, yes. So I'm sure there was a time where you did maybe perhaps <laughs> let someone take the guitar or uh-huh. or sing, and 
Yeah. I, I, there's what one. Happened? I have I have one story, and it's probably the probably the um the story that has to be told in this situation. I was playing at a bar called it was called Zante, which is up in Orland Park. That's on six route six or one hundred and fifty nine. One hundred and fifty nine. Yeah, yeah. They have um they sort of uh they they changed like visual concepts. They don't call it. It's not called Zante. It's Black anymore. Sheep. It, they changed Unless it to it's, Black Sheep. Oh no, I think isn't is it, it changed changed again? It did. When I okay. played there, it was Black Sheep. I'm sorry. Okay. So I I played there with my old band when it was Zante, and then I was playing acoustic when it was Black Sheep, and they have since rebranded yet again, and now they're they're geared more towards uh, like fine dining food, taco trucks, oh, wow. that, pizza fusion Cause, stuff. Because I remember before when it was Black Sheep, they had like a like a taco truck mm-hmm. or they made it look their they made their kitchen look right like a it taco was like a truck. facade yeah it was a facade um they had really good food there. they did they did and they still do they yeah. still do but they just have um they sort of grabbed like drifted away from the club environment and drifted away from bands and and, and entertainment and and pushed more on the food side of it which is fine for them but <laughs> one time while it was Black Sheep, I was playing there on a Friday night. Now, when they hired me to play acoustic, they wanted me to play out in their very spacious outdoor seating area, kind of like a beer garden. And yeah. it was beautiful. Like, they had the big torches, and they had, like, these nice awnings, and everybody, you know, the, bringing dinner out. It was just beautiful. Beautiful. The skyline, it was just skyline of Orland Park, but, like, <laughs> with, with, like... Like the well, sun, they've, they've got you know. I meant to say more like like the, the way the sun was setting off. It just was yeah. really beautiful, and I always loved playing there. They were so gracious, and they're just you know, Greeks have a, a way of just treating you like family, really yes. hospitable people, and I loved playing there. But the night that I was playing there, that it was raining, okay. so you you'd go this Plan B route if you were scheduled to play acoustic, and it was raining, they'd put you on the main stage. Inside. Inside. Now, the main stage is like, back then it was like this 20,000 watt monstrosity, huge, huge sound system, a light show that would rival an amphitheater, like just enormous. Yeah, their lights are absolutely crazy there. But their stage, the actual stage itself is one of the weirdest stages that I've ever played on. Yeah, it's like... It's it's weird. Elevated, and then there's like iron fencing around it and stuff, but... It was, I mean, I loved doing it when it was a full band show because, you know, there's a lot of energy in the room and it was great. But just me by myself, I really just felt like I was just screaming into a tin can the whole time. It was just one guy and a guitar. But the night that I'm talking about was a pretty good turnout. There was a decent amount of people and, you know, I was vibing with the crowd pretty good. I had some requests and sure enough, I, I go to take a break, put the guitar down for a few minutes and I'm like, talking to some people and this guy comes up and he's he's very very tall and slender he's got long hair he's got like a an open his 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 collared shirt was open down to like two buttons and he's got a guitar pick as a necklace oh no oh no (laughs) and he's just got all this sort of young guy swag and he's just like hey man i see you're doing a good job bro man you sound real good uh I just, uh, you know, just think maybe I could like do a song. Come back and do a song. Like he's just being real schmoozy. Yeah. And I was Excuse like, me. you know, man, I, I, 
I don't I don't do that, man. I'm sorry. I I thanks, but uh why don't you just go hang out with your friends and let me do the work tonight? You just go chill and have fun. You know, and he took it exactly with the way people take it, which is just like, all right, man, 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 man. Like mm-hmm. you could see that there was like this little twinge of butt hurt because I didn't I didn't acquiesce to his request. But then <laughs> this is where things go so wrong. Oh, oh. No. I think I, I might have just I might have went over to the bar to get a drink. I don't know. I walked away and my mom was standing there because my parents who now currently live in Arkansas were mainstays at my shows. They would be, they would be at every gig. And so my mom starts talking to the guy or the guy starts talking to my mom and somehow he convinces her or tells her that he had tried out for one of the many TV uh, singing shows. So American Idol. Pick one. I don't remember which one. One of the, what is there? There's American Idol. There's uh, America's Got Talent. Yeah. Then you have like um, the, voice. the Voice. Yeah. I think there was even an X Factor in there for one season. Oh yeah. But whatever it was, he was trying to establish some pedigree with my mom. Like, you know, I, I tried out for X, Y, and Z. Did he concert. actually sound like that too? He did. Wait, yeah. He really did. Like. He might be the the basis of the the voice that is used it was probably him, but he did. He instead of trying to like give me his credentials, he told my mother. You know, my mom's just a sweet lady. She's the sweetest. Human I wonder being. if he he just randomly struck like struck up conversation with her, or if he like targeted her and like knew like, hey, that's his mom. Yes, because I would have no doubt acknowledged that she was my mother because that was another part of the show like my mom you know a lot of the regular attendees to my shows become part of the show they get acknowledged they have their roles at the shows and she was she's kind of a sometimes my mom would wind up being a little bit of a a punching bag for me on the stage she'd be the butt of the jokes and stuff i'd be like (laughs) yelling at my mom and stuff you know but i think it's a really important thing to understand about me that I don't think everybody, I don't think people get is that when I play, when I perform, that's not exactly me Yes, on that stage. That's really more of an, like an exaggerated personification of me that basically just sort of a, a, like a, like a arrogant, belligerent, louder version of myself. I don't normally act like that. I don't yell at my mom from the stage. She's my mother. I also don't like, I will say things like, you know, I'm so incredibly handsome. It's just a hard thing to have to do this job all the time when you're as good looking as I'm. I don't really feel that way. But I just I've always felt like it's important as a performer to like uh, separate yourself from the performer and then create a personification of something that is worthwhile to watch. That's entertaining. And it's not necessarily fake. No, it's just you're an entertainer. So you're. You're putting on the you're you're giving it everything you've got. I just you know I I don't act in in my real life. I don't act the way I do when there's a microphone in front of me. The the the, the person on stage is sort of an exaggerated version of my my real life self, which is probably the case for a lot of people. And my mom is a great example of how that works. Is because I I will yell at her 
from the microphone. When <laughs> in real life, I'm very respectful to my mother. Yeah. But when I'm on stage, <laughs> she'll <laughs> become a pincushion for me. That goes out the window. Bob, get over there. Give me a shot. I'll scream at her. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> so this night, I feel like um, he was aware that this was my mother. And... <laughs> My mom is being the sweetheart she is. Like, I, I returned to her from wherever I went, bathroom, bar, wherever I went, and she essentially talked me into letting him play. She was like, Matt, you know, I know you said no. <laughs> this is my mother. Matt, I know you said no to that guy, but, uh, you know, you ought, to, you ought to give him a shot. He said he was, he said that he, he tried out for American Idol. I'm like, Mom, don't let anybody try out. <laughs> yeah, but he said he like he like made it through a couple rounds. He might be pretty good. He's got a big group of people over there. I think maybe <laughs> maybe you should let him play a song. And I'm like, no, mom, no. Don't you understand how this works? This is my show. <laughs> I'm like, do you have any idea how expensive this equipment is and how long it's taken to cultivate this show? You want me to just hand him the guitar, give him the reins? I'm like, these these people hired me to play a show here. They didn't hire me to host an open mic. This is my show. That's my name up there. And you want me to just give the guitar to some guy that I don't even know because he tried out for American Idol because he stood in line with 14,000 people at the United Center? Yeah, well, he bought me a drink, dear. <laughs> so I... He was I, very nice. I was, I was agitated with my mother who was uh. pleading a good case and I walked away. Mm -hmm. And then... I don't know what happened that night, but I just... Did he approach you again? No. But no. I softened up. And oh, okay. I eventually capitulated. And I went over to him. and Because he, he had a specific song that he wanted to play. Oh, okay. He, he wanted to sing, I Will Follow You Into the Dark by Death Cab for Cutie. That's the song he wanted to play. Like, he'd he didn't just say, hey, man, can I get up there and do a song? He was like, hey, man. Could I get up there and do I Will Follow You Into the Dark by Death Cab for Cutie? I'm like, <laughs> frankly speaking. I, you know, not to stereotype, but I feel like that's how so, some Death Cab for Cutie fans come off a little pretentious like that. I, absolutely. I, I think. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not, you know, if someone is listening to this and they're a Death Cab for Cutie fan, like I'm not calling you out. I'm just saying some of the. Some of their fans that I've encountered have kind of like this, you know. I wouldn't. I. I don't think this guy was even a death cab. For, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have lumped him in with death cabs. Uh, diehard fans. He probably just heard that song and liked it and learned it and sang it to his girlfriend. And I. He, I mean, I don't now think... that you mention it, like giving the the description of him, mm -hmm. he, it doesn't sound like he's like if I would have pulled him off to the side and said. You want to sing I Will Follow You Into the Dark by Death Cab for Cutie? Name me five Death Cab for Cutie songs. <laughs> Give me, name three of their albums. He'd just be like, bro, I just wanted to do that one song, bro. <laughs> like, he wouldn't have. I guarantee it. <laughs> guarantee it. He just, that was the song he wanted to do. I want to make that, you know, I'm going to have you come back. We're going to make this guy a regular, <laughs> a regular character on Kankakee Podcast. <laughs> Yo, bro, I just, you know. He did. He just had that. Okay. I don't know. So, so, yeah. so he had the specific had, song he wanted to play. And I had a, a change of heart. And so right at the, this was a two sets, was one, one night, two set show. I played the first set at the top of the second set. I even, I even sort of, I, I introduced him and I said what my mom had said. I said, look, you know, I don't ever do this 
but you know, I have a feeling about this guy. We're gonna give him a chance. Orland Park, how about a nice welcome? I don't remember what his name was, but I, I introduced him and I handed him my guitar, and he puts it on. And the, I was I was playing a Taylor at the time. I Which, don't, I, don't I, I know you're a Dean, yeah, Dean Martin, or a, not a Dean Martin listener. I do like Dean a Martin, Martin. <laughs> a Martin guy. My gosh, but, <laughs> but, but yeah. both Martin and Taylors are pretty expensive. Yeah, it's a, it's a it was a nice guitar. It was very expensive, and uh, he didn't have a pick. I'm like, why don't you just use the one around your neck? You know, it's. <laughs> But it's like on a necklace. So I reach in my pocket, I hand him the pick, and he's like, "Which capo position is it?" You know, like he's got a he 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 didn't seem what? to have. I know it, if if you don't play guitar, it's that little sort of a uh, hooky thing that you put on the bridge to change your tuning. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it looks like a clamp. Yeah, it's like yeah. a clamp. And but he was asking you where the clamp should right. go. And I believe off the top of my head, I think I will follow you into the dark is capo position five, but I'm not 100% sure. So even me, I'm standing there right in front of him with 75 people watching us, and I'm trying to set his capo position for him because <laughs> he doesn't seem to know exactly what he's doing and he starts strumming and his his strumming ability was probably like eighth grader with two years of experience like he just wasn't much of a strummer and uh he didn't have very good coordination and he certainly couldn't sing very well uh he was messing things up pretty pretty severely do you think he was just very nervous i do i do i think that i probably made him very nervous i think that I, you know, he might have been thrown a Hail Mary and didn't expect me to say yes. I think I caught him off guard. He might have been boozed up, too. He could have been—at that point in the night, he probably had already had a few drinks. And Yeah, that's the second set of the night. Yeah, it know? was probably about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And yeah. his friends were so excited. They all had their phones out, and they were cheering him on and stuff. But all I could think when he was a minute and a half into the song was— I am never doing this again. I'm never doing this again. I'm looking at my mom. My mom's shrugging and kind of wincing. She's like, oh. like, hey, he said he was good. <laughs> yeah. And this guy, I mean, he, he just did um, he did what what amounts to be about a karaoke version of the song, which you know that would be an entire show of itself in terms of my my personal philosophy on whether. Every person that is competent to sing and play should be out in the bars playing. Like, right. I mean, you're not doing li- <laughs> you're not doing a live karaoke show. No, but you know, I mean, you're do- you are the performer. You're the one just, who's playing the songs. There's just a great there's a gigantic disconnect that happens sometimes with people when they have some musical or vocal ability. And I don't know if 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 shows like American Idol or if it's just our society as a whole over the past 20 years has changed somewhere along the way. But it seems like anybody that is a competent singer or musician, all of a sudden their friends and family are encouraging them to just swing for the fences. Like, wow, man, you sing pretty good. You should go be on one of these TV shows. And everybody gets this misperception in their heads that like, well, maybe I am that good. And they don't want to put in the time and effort and work that it really takes to earn your spot. You just want to show up for the job. <laughs> like, I'm here for my audition. Yeah. Like- and then when when there's like this cascading disappointment when you're immediately dismissed and you're just left with this sort of emptiness of like, but I, I thought I was really good. I thought I was so good at this. 
Like you probably are a glorified karaoke singer. You're probably karaoke level. So go out and have fun with it. But. Well, and I mean, especially with the the example you're giving, they're at a a starter stature, you know, and they they have to get more experience. And it's like it's like anything you do, right? Whether it's music or art or sports, you first start it. And I mean, maybe you're lucky and you start and you're like, oh, I'm actually not too bad at this, (laughs) you know, but, you know, that doesn't. That doesn't mean you, you know, yeah, you have to, you have to keep working at it. You could take sports as a great, like analogy or a a metaphor for that. When you got like a 12 year old kid that's whipping 75 mile an hour fastballs and you're like, he's got something, you know, let's get him into the gym. Let's, let's bulk him up a little bit. Let's get him a a, a private coach. That's going to teach him how to harness the speed and accuracy in his arm and you spend the next five years cultivating and working them out and teaching them how to throw a slider and you do all of this work for the guy the whole time you're spending thousands and thousands of dollars cultivating, getting them up to a 95 mile an hour and then nothing happens. You know, you, he does tryouts, tries to walk on it at college level and it's like, yeah, he's good, but he's not good enough. Yeah, he can throw, but he, he's like, Nothing is guaranteed, nothing is promised, but at least when you put in the work and you put in the effort and you put in the time, that's your best shot. But showing up to, to try out for America's Got Talent is tantamount to never doing anything, but just thinking that you're going to walk onto the Cubs because you can throw fast without doing any of the work involved. Like you did nothing, but you just walked on and be like, because yeah, you know, um, my friends down at the bar said that I sound really good when I sing, uh, you know, Drake, and I sound great. So um, give me my $5 million, please. Like, what, what did you do to earn it? You did nothing. And then you you get the, del- the delusions get even worse when you hear those miraculous, almost like those miraculous stories where where it does happen, where people did walk on and then it, and you know, all the moons and planets lined up for this one person and it was successful and it happened. But really like your best bet, if you honestly think that you have musical talent and capability would be to set a realistic expectation for yourself. That would be, that's what I tell everybody about the life of being a musician is set a realistic goal, set a realistic expectation and then go earn it. Go follow through with it. And if you if you set the bar 10 feet off the ground and then you reach to 10 feet, then maybe raise it to 12, maybe raise it to 14. But don't come out of the gate and be like, I want to I want to go 100 feet because all you're going to do is disappoint yourself. And then it's going to cause all this frustration. And then you're going to like assuage blame to everybody else instead of saying, well, maybe it's maybe I'm not that good. You know, it's, it's so frustrating, even on the molecular level, which is how I feel. I'm just one guy playing music in a small town, but even I can see the frustration. I can feel the frustration for people that just have this sort of entitlement of what they think that they're owed because they're capable musicians or singers. It's like, go and earn it. It's all I can tell you. And at the end of the day, it's it, we all need to remember whatever it is that we are trying to pursue, we're not owed anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things it's hard for some of us to gr- to grasp the fact that, 
we're not owed a darn thing. And we also just have to be happy with what we're doing at the end of the day. Right. Because if that, that, you know, we don't reach that high end goal that we want to reach, we have to, you know, we have to be okay with that. You we have, have to, you have to love, you have to love the work mm-hmm. in order to, because at the end, end of the day, even if you, okay, even if you do go in a really high place, most of the time you're not there long. That's another good point. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that story. They're like, you know, <clears throat> I talk about, uh, you know, someone that just gets that one big album in the mainstream and then their next album was a flop and then that was it for their quote unquote mainstream career but they continue on yeah i think warp tour is probably a good example of where a lot of bands uh maybe 10 15 years ago it seemed to be sort of a a mark that a lot of bands got a got a little taste of you know, you you did well for yourself in in the market that you were playing in. You attracted enough attention to yourself, and you were able to jump onto work tour, even if it was for one date or four dates or ten. But like that seemed to be a seminal moment for a lot of musicians that were, I was coming up with. Is well, we got to play work tour, and I, I think that's excellent. And I feel like if you were able to play on that level, that that's something to be totally proud of, because there's like. On, when you're playing on that level, it's so fleeting and it's so, you just got to soak it up when you get it. And I've, I I never made it. I never made it to Warp Tour playing originals and touring. We got a chance to get on some pretty good bills and some pretty fun shows, but we never got on to even on, on you know, on the ninth stage of Warp Tour. We were playing in some like boozer loser tent for like 14 people. Never made it. Yeah, but I knew a lot of people—not a lot, but I knew a, at least a handful of people that'd be like, "Yeah, well, you know, back in whatever it was, '06, we got a chance to play ten dates on Warp Tour. It was the best experience of my life." And I, I'm really happy to have heard those stories, and it's like excellent, you know. Yeah, I got the chance. You one, got to do one it one time. See, one I have time. Was, Just I one date. I bet it was unforgettable. It it was it opened a lot of uh, doors in my mind. I'm like, wow. So this is how it really works. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, it's not as glamorous as <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> as I remember. I feel like feature presentation might have made it to Warped Tour. In 06. In 06, yeah. feature presentation got four dates, and in 08 is when the band I was in, the Projection, mm-hmm. played one just one date, mm. but. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's just, it's one of those things you just have to be grateful for. Mm-hmm. And because how many people would have killed to have that experience, you know? Absolutely. So yeah. Um, it's it's just, we got to soak up those moments when you can, because the <laughs> the rough days are there. And it's not to be pessimistic. It's just, it's just life. But I mean, for me... Uh, like along along the way for me, those type of experiences were definitely uh, a big a, a big part of my growing up. Because like many musicians, you know, I always remember listening to Lupe on his podcast when he was down here. He talked about how he spent years playing punk rock music. Yes, was, well, like, let's yeah, let's let's talk about <laughs> let's get to the was, beginning. Yeah, of... I mean, you got to go back. My my very first experiences as a musician was as a drummer. 
I spent five years playing drums in punk rock bands. Uh, I started when I was 14 years old, which would have been probably, let's see here, 1996. I guess I was 15. So I was 15. It's 1996. And I always felt like I had rhythm in my bones. You know, I just, I don't know how to explain it. I just... I remember watching drummers and just thinking, boy, if I ever had a chance, if I ever had a chance to sit behind an actual drum kit, I know that I could do it. I know that I could figure it out. And I, I got that chance. I, I went to a buddy's house for one of these like bro sleepovers and his dad had a drum set down in the basement. I asked him, oh, can, we, can I play it? And he was like, sure. We didn't even have drumsticks. Went and like <laughs> sawed off some drumsticks from like a broom handle. Was he not a... A, f- a frequent player anymore, he, and that's that's yeah. why he had no drums. They were like, they were an old ratty old drum set that had been sitting there for years. So collecting dust. His much. my friend, his name was Billy. His dad was this like local legend player up in like the Northwest Indiana area, and he he played for years in bands up there. And so, yeah, he just had an old kit, and exactly the what I'm saying. Like I just sat there, it's like. I started being like, and they were, they were like, are you sure you've never done this before? I'm like, I, I have never sat behind a drum kit. As my foot's like, boom, 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 and I start playing a beat. And if it was 2004, they would have said, oh, you should try out for American Idol. <laughs> exactly. Hey, man, have you ever thought about drummer? I, no. So, yeah, I, I just, I got the rhythm. I got the rhythm in me. And then because those people were very generous they let me take the drum kit. Oh, dude, that's so then, cool. Like what, we, what was what was his dad's name? His name what, was Jackie Jackie Virgin. Was his name? Do you remember any of the the bands? I know that was? one band was called <laughs> one band was called Easy Louise, <laughs> and then when we were in high school, and then on into like just out of high school, they were called the Fault Line Band. They were doing country, but like so well done so well done he was just a phenomenal guitar player and back then they were doing modern like 90s country which might have seemed at the time like it was a little passe or a little cheesy but if they came out right now doing the material that they were doing back then places would go nuts people excuse me country music fans love that throwback country sound right now like we we slip in some of that classic 90s country and it's like it's like throwing Molly at the crowd. They love it. So <laughs> yeah, it's that uh, it's that generation that <clears throat> yeah. generation's time right it is. now. Yeah, it's, like it's it's probably has the same nostalgic vibe that '90s pop and rock music has to their audience. You throw in, you know, George Strait, Garth Brooks, John Michael Montgomery. You throw that stuff at a crowd after they've had a couple of drinks, and they they just love it. So yeah, so I took. I take this, like, we have the sleepover that, you know, where we spend the night probably eating pizza and watching HBO. And then I take this drum kit home with me. What are you watching on HBO? <laughs> That's what I want to know. And my, I show up in the garage with my, my parents are just like, what's that? I'm like, it's a drum set. I'm a drummer now. <laughs> okay. So thanks. I'll be in the garage with my drum set. And and what was their reaction? It was just to... sort of the stunned, like you're you but you're a drummer now. I'm like, yeah, I'm in a band and I'm a drummer now. So <laughs> figure it out. And Work the noisiest instrument of all. Thankfully, you know, the, the garage was uh, separate from the house. So oh well, that's yeah. that's a help. Yeah, we were able to secure me an actual pair of drumsticks, and then 
And you grew you grew up in Moments, no, right? No, no, no. You Beecher. didn't grow up in Beecher. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I well, was just not up the too road. far. Yeah. No, just up the road a piece. And uh, so yeah, I, I played in punk bands, and like we we the first year we couldn't you know there was nowhere to play a show publicly. The only shows that we were able to get on were like house parties and stuff like that. Right. For real. Like just like the the nineties teenager movies. Exa- you know, that you think of like uh uh can't hardly, like can't hardly wait. wait. <laughs> yeah, that was exactly <laughs> the band in that movie was like, oh yeah, we got <laughs> did, our first gig. Did anybody order a love burger? <laughs> well done. It's it's a great scene. So yeah, like we would somebody would like procure a keg and then have a barn party and, and there'd be like three screaming loud punk bands playing like crate amps and cheap guitars and one speaker and one little PA box and one microphone and just basically just making noise. And I mean, we did that for years and years. And then while playing the drums, I started to kind of drift into guitar really slowly. You know, I I had buddies that would kind of show me a guitar chord a little bit here and there. So I, I did sort of a Dave Grohl evolution of moving away from the drum kit and making my way towards the front of the stage and started playing guitar and singing. And then that's like right around the year 2000, somewhere in there. I guess I was probably about 18 or 19 years old. We, uh, with these guys that I was playing all this punk music with, we we came through and did the Battle of the Garage Bands with King Music <laughs> in 2000, 01, and 02. We did it three years in a row. We never won. The what, best... was, what was your name at that time? <laughs> in the year 2000, we, we came up with a new name for every single show. Oh, okay. So the first year we played, we were called Watterson. <laughs> Named after Bill Watterson, who wrote for Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, okay. The first year was Watterson. I think we placed fifth. The second year, we were called Estudiantes en Fuego. Okay. The yeah, Students that's... on Fire. I don't remember what we placed that year, but we didn't win. And then the third year was my favorite, White Hot Riot. Oh, my gosh. White Hot Riot, but with like a the letter Y and like an umlaut to make it rhyme. And that year we placed second. We placed second that year. We came real close. I think we even might have wound up with a cash prize or something like that. But it was a great experience for a lot of reasons, working and doing that event. Because first it got me introduced to Dave King, which was uh, like a lifelong friendship after that. From working with him at the Battle of the Garage Bands and then becoming a customer. I started going to King Music in probably 99 and then forging this sort of customer owner relationship with Dave where he became this like he was he was just a great person to talk to and uh work with you know he's yeah. just an absolute joy of a human being and then you know sort of working with Dave for years and then I got to you know get to know his kids and just become more immersed in um the local music in the local uh music store and and their family and so did you his oldest son did you guys ever did he play in he probably he's got to be around your age he is and he's he's definitely a friend he's actually he's pretty close to my neighbor at this point he lives right up the road from me that's joe okay yeah joe uh, and joe uh i I think i think i met joe probably through other other avenues through different friends okay i thought maybe i i I don't know as much about joe obviously Mm -hmm. as like you know dan or ben but um, I, I would imagine Joe might have been in some 
oh, yeah. bands around that time and maybe you guys played shows together or something. Um, not to my knowledge, no. but I did meet Joe through, I think it was Adam Young. Well, I was up in Chicago is how I met Joe. And he was living, <laughs> I'm sure he remembers, he was living way on the west side of Chicago. And I remember him telling me where he lived. I'm like, how do you do that? He's like, man, you got to make it work because he <laughs> lived in a rough, rough part of town. But uh it was it was it was sort of the, the laying laying the foundation for aspects of my life as it exists today because Ben is just a huge part of my life now. He's he's become a really close friend, but he's also the lead guitar player in my band. And he um you know, getting into that friendship and then ultimately working that band probably started years ago as I became a customer in the store. And then from being a customer, I got to know him sort of on a, on a, on a, like a, on the fringe and then learning that he's also a musician, that he's a competent guitar player. He played in bands around town. And then we in Black Cadillac used to hire Ben to sub for our lead guitar player. If he couldn't make a show, then Ben became sort of an understudy. And so then getting a chance to play with him on that level back probably would have been 20. 12 2013 2014 i could see that like he is just an outstanding he's an outstanding player and he's a great performer and he's just a really really cool dude so then you know flash forward four or five years when i decide that it's you know with with help from the other players in the band which would have been eric carroll and jake zimmerman when it came time to pick a guitar player or ask a guitar player <laughs> he was kind of a no-brainer i'm like I, well, we'll see we'll see if he wants to do it because he's definitely capable he's definitely qualified so then that's how it all kind of fell into place for that but like many players i had years and years of straight up punk rock in my <laughs> blood and in, in my bones so so what were some of <clears throat> besides the the bands that you had for the, the the King Music Battle of the Bands, what were some of the other okay, yeah. names? And I, I would imagine at some point you probably played Earthworm Empire, right? I only in I Kankakee. Only, I never played Earthworm, but I That's did go surprising. there. Surprising. Okay, I did go there for shows, but I never yeah. got a chance to play there. Okay, so the band that I played in while I was in high school, I graduated in '99. So from 97 to 99, I played in a band called the Elroys, like Elroy Jetson. And it was me and three other guys from Beecher. We played, uh, like I said, we, 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 did, we did a couple of house parties, like graduation parties and stuff like that. And then I think the very first public show that we played as a band was in March of 1997 in Kankakee at the Wicked Brew. And the Wicked Brew was, at that time, probably one of, if not several, places around Kankakee that housed, that hosted uh, up-and-coming bands and, and, and shows. Where was Wicked Brew? I've it never was, heard of that one. All I know is that it was right off of Skyler, somewhere... Honestly, I don't I don't know exactly where. I know it was somewhere off Skyler Avenue. Someone's listening to this right now. They're like, it's on I know. Skyler and you know somebody who uh, yeah. who frequented the Wicked Brew yeah. will probably once this comes out, they'll probably comment and be like, <laughs> Yeah, the Wicked Brew was located here. Right. Like, That's, my, I've never heard of that place. I'm, yeah. And I'm kind of surprised. 
so the show, I remember the show was, it was us. It was a band called the Rodmans. And then it was a band called Mike. They were called Mike. Like M-I-C? Nope. M-I-K-E. Oh, okay. It was three dudes and they're all named Mike. Mike. So the band was called Mike. Yeah. They were the headliner. And uh, okay. I, I don't honestly remember a whole lot about them. But uh, I know that there was a band called Mike. So we did that. And then we directed some of our efforts a little further north. It was a really, like, the Southland of Chicago. If you were a punk rocker, then you made your way to Homewood and you played at a place called Off the Alley. And that was, throughout the 90s, that was the spot for a lot of young, sort of, uh, anybody in the punk genre, you were trying to get into that place to play. It was an all-ages room. I don't even... I can't remember exactly how big it was. Maybe held 300 people, 400 Was it people? strictly a venue or was it something else as well? It was the back of a record store. Okay. Because I remember for a while I thought there was a place in Homewood. And of course, this would have been some years later mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure if there was association. But there used to be like a comic book store that had like a back room. They used to have shows, mm-hmm. I think, in Homewood. But... Sounds like that's a different yeah, place. Yeah, probably close. So yeah, there was a there was a, a record store called Record Swap, and then behind it was Off the Alley, and they would do a lot of they would do a very traditional style of um, show. It'd be three four band bill. Yeah, they had a house provided microphone speakers PA. You just had to bring your amps. There'd be I think it was six bucks. For four bands, and then the bands would get a little payout. They had a, it was it was a bar, but it was a bar that just served like pop and juice. They had like a little bartender who was just some yeah. emo kid back there, like, <laughs> can I help you? Some totally pouty little kid back there, like, what? What do you want? <laughs> like, can we just get some Canadian clubs and uh, maybe some Skittles? Yeah. But man, like this this was such a huge part of my my growing up because to 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 go there to just. To participate in shows there was was something. It was something really, really special for us at the time, because you were you were listening to new bands, you were listening to stuff you hadn't heard before, and we were learning. We were learning right. how to function in a band. You know, you're, well, and you're writing your own songs. Mm-hmm. I know we haven't hinted at that enough, but I mean, this is you're writing your own material. I mean, yep. maybe you were playing some covers here and there, but Never. like in that scene, in the punk scene, mm-hmm. usually like you're writing. Your own there was, stuff, you know, this is... That, what you would probably do is if you were good for a 40-minute set, you would play six, seven of your own, and you would be m- maybe, and I mean, that's a stressed maybe, slip a cover in there. And if you did a cover, it was probably something very different than what you were doing. Like, I, I, it's hard to explain, but like, we used to cover Sea of Love was the song that we did a cover of. And we just did like a punk version of it, made it real fast yeah, and, and crazy. Th- and that's, uh, that's something that the punk genre has been doing for yeah. the rock genre. We, we, <laughs> love, we love to take pop songs and make them yeah. punk, you know. But it, was, it, was a, it was definitely <clears throat> a big learning experience, and it was very meaningful for my upbringing to learn how to be in a band, how to, how to work together with musicians, how to make press kits and how to use a silk screen to make shirts and getting into recording studios and doing all the things that you have to do to be in a band. And all of it was all this really rugged learning experience for a very, very young mind. But it, it shaped me in the sense that it, 
sort of picked my career path in a way. Well, at least in my mind it did because I was like, I want to do this. I want to go, I want to go be a musician and I want to go record bands. And I want to work in a studio. It's what sent me to Columbia College, which is where I went to school. So this was that important to me in my life at that time. Which so was you like, graduated in what, 2000? Unfortunately, I never graduated. I graduated high school in 99. Okay. I went to my community college up in Chicago Heights called Prairie State. Yes. I did two yeah. years at Prairie State and then I transferred up to Columbia. And, you know, it's a it's sort of a cliche story these days, but, you know, I just kind of, I didn't take good care of my finances and I botched my student loans and I I sort of ran out of money. You know, it's, it's an expensive school and I was sort of yeah. undereducated and I certainly didn't have the the funds. I was borrowing money to to pay for it and I just got in over my head and uh as much as I loved the school and I loved the educational experience of being there eventually I just I couldn't afford it and so I did one year up there I still have I have three years of credits for schooling that I just never went back and finished because then life happens along the way and then you know I I, I want to get pulled in a bunch of different other directions and I, I joined a new band and we started touring and the touring schedule and that band prohibited me from being real serious about about school and going semester for semester and I, I just made some choices I'm like I learned a lot about the aesthetics of live sound and what you know how to work a mixer and where to mic where to, where to place mics and use the eyes like I got the experience and the knowledge that I needed in order to keep moving ahead as a musician so I just I so you were going to Columbia to learn like to be an engineer yeah to be okay. a live sound engineer okay so that was my school like I I took uh, a couple of different classes one with I think his name is Jack Alexander I think is his name he's he's a really prominent uh, it's been it's been close to twenty years now. So, but I think his name was Jack Alexander. He's a really, really famous uh, sound engineer. And I got into one of his classes, which was a super uh, good experience to learn. You know, he was a real hands-on guy. He had a kind of a, a brass personality. I'm sorry, brass <laughs> brass personality. And you know, sound guys are kind of prickly in, in by nature. And, yeah, and, uh, yep. <laughs> he, def- he definitely fit the part. But he was so great to learn off of, you know, and he had a big booming voice and stuff. But I learned a great deal. And the, the the things that I learned at that school at that time, I've taken with me for the last 20 years. You know, it's not that's not something that everybody can say about their degrees. Like you go to school for four years, you take a diploma and then you don't ever apply that to your trade. But yeah, I did one year and I got enough experience out of that for everything that I've done musically since then. So it was a good year. It was definitely a good year. I was going to say, so yeah, you, you, you get the one year in at Columbia, you didn't end up finishing, um, but obviously you gained a lot. So what band was it that you joined at that time and, okay. and started being very serious? It wasn't Deconstructing Gym. It was. was it that it was, was the Deconstructing one. Gym. Okay. So yeah, that would have been 02. So that was 2002. I was 21 years old. Uh, I had hair. I had hair back then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear you. I'm losing mine too. I had some long hair and I was playing it like this was a lot of people. It was, it was, it was a dream opportunity for me at the time to be like, you know, I, the guy I was working with, Jeff Julian, he's a great friend. He's been a friend for over 20 years. He's, he's a solid guy and he's, he's an artist and, uh, he's a very, very talented musician. 
and he, we we sort of mapped out a plan for what he wanted to do, which was you know he wasn't you know this is goes back to what I was talking about earlier. You set a realistic goal for yourself, and then you attempt to achieve that goal, and that's what he did. He said, "Look, we're not looking to be trash a hotel room rich here. We're looking at sustaining ourselves for a couple of months of tours." Come back, work, and then go back out on the road. You know, you press an album, you sell that album. You go to a town, you sell some CDs and some merch, and then you get some mail, get some people on your mailing list, and then you come home, and then you go back to that town, and you build. And then you sort of make like a, a spider web of the Midwest, and you spread out, and you hit these high market towns. You get on college radio, and you try to build onto this sort of indie rock scene. And there's a lot of uh, tools and there's a lot of things that you can resource. At the time, there was a lot of resources. There was local magazines like Illinois Entertainer. There's these these rags that will, right. that will post your show information without having to buy an ad. Yeah, and you mentioned college radio. College, like college radio? radio used, I don't I don't think it's, it, it well, it, radio in general isn't as big, but college radio used to be huge yeah. for, for breaking new bands. Yeah, go back to 2002, <clears throat> 2003. Like he would, and, and Jeff came from a broadcasting, he had a broadcasting uh, background. He oh, okay. went to school for it. So like he knew, like if we if, if we were going to book a show in Urbana, that he could reach out to the college station. I think it was WEFT, WEFT. But like he would be able to coordinate where we would, be playing at a show in Urbana on a Saturday night, or I'm sorry, like a Friday night, and then we would stop by the radio station and do a 15-minute interview, talk about the show, plug the website, do a song, and be like, okay, there's a deconstructing gym. That's Matt and and, and Jeff, and they're going to be at the Brass Rail tonight. Just come on out, $7, or 7 p.m., $5, <laughs> like yeah. huge promo. Be yeah. like a, and, and he would do that all over when, when you know, Every show or or town that we would go to, he would at least try to get us a lead in to that town, whether it was on a college radio station or or somewhere that we could plug and promote. Like he was very very smart about doing that, and he got some sort of uh, road experience from other bands to teach him and show him the ropes. So we did that for years. Like the very first tour that we did, we were gone for like three like three weeks. Like he booked us a three-week tour when we had we just recorded a little five-song ep and we pressed we pressed it ourselves and like we burning we cds we right? designed it ourselves everything yeah. it was completely yeah we, we made the jackets for the only thing we didn't press were the shirts but everything else we did all by ourselves and um you know we had our girlfriends be yep. hammering this stuff out for yep. us and <laughs> we jumped into a honda civic and threw two guitars and a speaker in the back and we hit the road and we kept doing that for years. And eventually we acquired a bass player and a drummer, Brian Can on drums and Trevor Hoger on bass. And then we spent the next couple of years recording albums and touring. That was all we did. Come back to our day jobs for as long as we had to and then start get back out on the road. And it was a great experience. Like I if if you have the capability of doing something like that, I would I would highly encourage musicians that have a, a thirst for knowledge to get out there and, you know, experience a little bit of that before, you know, before it gets too late and you, you know, you settle down, settle down pop out a couple kids. <laughs> all of those life choices make it harder. Yes. Because that's what it happened. Does. I mean, I, I have met people along the way in my musical uh, career 
to what I can't really call it a career. I'll <laughs> say journey. Um, and there have been some that are married, have kids mm-hmm. and they've gotten out there, but yes, it is harder to do, but it really is. Even if you don't end up like pursuing that career for like your whole life, it really just opens up your eyes to a lot of different things. Oh. And it's just a, it's a life changing experience and shout out to Brian, by the oh, way, because I play with Brian and St. Yeah. Jimmy and we don't play a lot of shows, but I love Brian. Like, He's Absolutely. He, he's one of the reasons I'm so glad that I ended up joining St. Jimmy because he's such a such a great dude. We, we Him and I get along so well. He is. So I mean, he stood up in my wedding. He's a, he's a very, very good dude, and uh, he's got a great family. He's got a great wife, and yeah, he's he's got his head screwed on really well, and, and he's also a, a heck of a good drummer, too. Yes, you know, he is. On top of being, you know, he's a big Green Day fan, so yeah. that, that that was an easy, is an easy job for him to to uh, sink his teeth into because he's likes the material, but even outside of uh, the, you know, the, the green day catalog, he's really, really smart and versatile on the drums. And that's what I've always liked about him too. He's a good improviser. He's got a lot of stamina back there. So yeah, he's an excellent guy. Very, very good dude. So, you know, you're, you're doing deconstructing Jim. You are, I mean, what, what was the ultimate goal with deconstructing Jim? I mean, that was, was it, it was to make it right. I mean, well, like I said, it, it, Jeff was, you know, Jeff was the singer, guitar player, manager. He was, he was the heart the, and soul. He was. Yeah. You know, and definitely learned a lot from him, but he set a very achievable goal. He making it to some degree was definitely in the books or, or sorry, in the, in the works. Like he definitely wanted to make it, but he didn't define making it as you know, signing to a major label and, and, and working out of a, you know, half a million dollar budget in some fancy studio and, you know, assembling a tour opening for Fleetwood Mac, like his version of making it was simply to have a band that sustains itself. That was what he wanted. He wanted like a a job at home that he could work while he was here and then go out on the road for a month and have the shows turn enough of a profit to where the band would support itself. That's all he wanted. He just, you know, you got a, a Tupperware container full of shirts. You've got a cardboard box full of CDs. You got a big merch board. You get on the, you know, you get on these tours with the right bands. You have uh, sort of a, you have a guarantee that is to be met by the club plus points when you make more than that. And then you sell the absolute heck out of your merch. And then when you come home, you lay out the money and say, here's our expenses. And then this is the money that we get to keep. And we'll use that towards the next record. And that's that's how it was all meant to be. And that was his way of saying, here's how we make it. And, you know, we worked really, really hard to achieve that goal. That was, you know, goal. And some of these, some of the tours that we did made money and then some of them were uh, you know a little a little light frankly you know because you know some clubs would would honor their agreements and pay you and then sometimes it'd be like it was it was a light night and we didn't make enough money so here's 50 bucks yeah and uh you know four paps blue ribbons and a pizza (laughs) and then that's got to get you from tulsa oklahoma to uh you know wichita kansas good luck guys and then pretty soon we're dipping into our own pockets going okay you know I haven't had a shower in three days, so let's uh, stay in a flea bag motel and 
you know, get to sleep in a bed tonight. And like, you know, it's, you are you are bringing back so many memories from talking about you know these tours to like even before talking about playing in, in punk rock bands in the mm-hmm. local Kankakee scene. It's just I think bringing bringing up so many different memories right now. It's so critically it's so critically important to me. Like it's it's made me the person that I am because yeah. you really like you know there's a deafening silence of playing to an empty room where you are literally entertaining a bartender and on a Tuesday night. And, you know, you are hoping, hoping that three people walk in and you can sell a t-shirt just so you can make it to the next town. Like when, when you have done that, when you have played to nobody, then that, that will keep this humility about you for the rest of your life that any musician will totally relate to that and they'll understand that. You know, you could pull Dave Grohl off of a stage in front of 40,000 people and be like, well, tell us about the early days when you played to nobody and he'll remember it. And yeah, he'll, he'll talk he'll about know exactly it, yeah. what it was like yeah. to sit in the back of a van with no heat where you're like sitting on a drum case and you're, you know, eating White Castle <laughs> and drinking hams because we yeah. all did it. Yeah, man. <laughs> so yeah. What, what are some stories you, you're talking about trying to make it just to the next show? And I mean, that's what it was. The, the, like the three or four tours that mm-hmm. I did, obviously, um, cause it's all do it yourself, DIY, mm-hmm. you know, you're just trying to make it to the next town. I remember on our very first tour with the projection, we were in Florida and we had run out of money <laughs> and we needed to make it to New Orleans. Oh, wow. And we were in Orlando. <laughs> so that's a pretty big, that's... I, I, I don't remember the mileage, but that's a bit, you know, you've got what, two states uh, in between the two? That would see, uh, <laughs> you got to go across uh, Alabama and then Mississippi. Yeah. So, yeah, you got yeah. it. So, that's you know, a, it's long a long one. Yeah, so I had to sell one of my guitars. I had brought two electrics with me and, you know, one I kept as a backup. Of course. And so, you know, I mean, I went to Guitar Center and, of course, if you're selling it for them to resell, they're going to give you half. Oh, you ain't kidding me for that. But, you know, so I got half of what the guitar was worth and it was like, I don't know, it was like $300 right. or something oh, like man. that is what I got for yeah, it. Yeah, but how did that make you feel? But, that, was well, that heartbreaking? It was heartbreaking, man. Imagine. Yeah, I think we ended up we ended up doing some driving and I think we ended up, uh, we went, went to a, uh, we ended up in Tampa. Okay. In Tampa, Florida is where we stopped. At a guitar center, mm-hmm. and I sold. I had a. It was a Schecter uh, PT, which for those that don't know what that is, it it's Schecter's version of a Fender Telecaster. Oh, okay. Like it looks exactly like a Fender Telecaster, pretty much, and um, and actually PT stands for Pete Townsend. Um, oh. Any anyway, so yeah, I got like you know half of what it was worth. <clears throat> and uh, we made it to New Orleans, you know, but. Yeah, and then of course the show in New Orleans wasn't very good, but that's that's we, how it is. I mean, but I mean, yeah, that's you know, I've got what, what are some what are some some stories from? Oh uh, man, yeah, I'm sure you've got. I'm trying to think of good because we we did some really. Good. <laughs> Everyone's always their their tour stories from their early days. I are think, always good. See, I. <laughs> I didn't have a chance to vet any of these stories, so I, I can't. <laughs> I can't talk about some of the stuff that happened without some well, sort of. Um, I, 
I, the, the best story of all would be a night in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Okay, so this would have been we we ran off like it was like a six day run. I think we left on we left on a Tuesday and we were wrapping up on a Sunday. Okay, so it was the second to last day in Cedar Falls. It was on a Saturday night and there was a bar called I think it was called the Reverb, if I'm not mistaken. It's been many years, but yeah. <laughs> Oh man! We always did well in uh, Cedar Rapids, in no. Iowa. <laughs> so we, to get to Cedar Falls, you had to drive through Cedar Rapids. So we definitely drove through it, but we never played in Cedar Rapids. So like Cedar Falls is another hour north. I think. I was gonna say. I remember. I think I've passed through Cedar Falls on the way to like Minnesota. Yeah, it's up there, yeah. but I'm, I, I just I can't remember that. I think it's called the Reverb. But here's what, there's some things that I do remember about this place. It's a beautiful venue. Big room and the entire like the the top trim of the of the uh of the room was lined with Jägermeister bottles, empty Jägermeister bottles. So if you looked up to the top from one corner all the way around 360 degrees was all Jägermeister bottles. Wow. And, like it was pretty impressive. Big stage, big light show. Also, the the club was on like the second floor. So if you had to haul an Ampeg eight ten base cabinet, <laughs> you were just in absolute nightmare territory. But uh, we uh, <laughs> and you probably had one of those. I, I think we did. I really do. Because <laughs> everyone had one back in the two yeah. thousands. Okay, so <laughs> or the nineties. Okay, so it's me and Jeff and Brian Can on drums, and we had a sub bass player. Because our bass player Trevor was a construction worker, couldn't couldn't join us on that tour. The the sub bass player is a guy from the area, and we're going to uh, we're going to leave his name, name off. Out. Okay, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll leave just his name we'll just out. call him. Uh, let's just call him Bob. Bob. All right. So, <laughs> so Bob, the bass player, the sub so, bass player. <laughs> it's the it's the end of the night. We I think we played first or second. It's like a four band bill. And since we were coming up to the end of the tour, you know, Bob was broke. And I was like, I was bankrolling him drinks at all the bars because he came through, uh, he came through in the clutch, like last minute uh, to get us to, 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 for us to make the tour. He learned all our material. We never even practiced. Like it was just, he was doing a good job for us in the clutch. And so I think that night I was just buying him some drinks and getting them a little, get him a little boozed up, you know, let's just say, yeah. um, and he was a single guy and we're out on the road. We're 180 miles from home and he's getting real friendly with, uh, some, some gals and, uh, which is something that happens when you're, when you're out playing, you know, you're in some it, strange it towns, happen. you're in some strange towns and you know, you know, you got one night. So he knows that he has a very, very tight window in order to make whatever he thinks is going to happen, happen. So he comes over to us and, you know, we are already, we're loaded out into the van. We're already loaded out and it's, we've got a long drive ahead of us, but since it's the second to last day on the road, Bob's been real gracious. Jeff extends some courtesy to him and says, okay, we're going to let you, try to make this happen but we, we, we gotta be you know we set some time parameters i don't i don't remember specifically what the time parameters were but he decides okay great you know I, if it let's just for for example's sake let's say you got to be 
done by 1 a.m. Basically. I don't remember what it was, but he was like, we'll do this for you. We'll take you back to these, these girls house. But at 1 a.m., we got to get back on the road. No problem. You know, Bob's oh, no. Bob's toasted. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Oh God, we get there and we, I come to find out that what he is, what he's talking about is a mother and a daughter. This ain't like two, this isn't like a couple of college co-eds. He's got a mom and a daughter. First of all, I'm like, what, oh is, this, my what is this mom doing at the show with the daughter? And what is Bob, who, who does he think he's, where is he going with this? He is on nobody's schedule. He is inside their house and he's just treating this like like there are not three musicians sitting outside losing their patience. I was just going to say, so you're just chilling outside, outside. In, the, in the van. Now, this is on some side street in Cedar Falls. We're in a driveway. There's a car to our right. There's no car to our left. It's like a th- like three person, like one, two, and three. There's supposed to be three cars side by side. We're in the middle. There's a car here, and there's nothing here. And it's, it's quiet. Like you could just... You could hear a mouse squeak. It's so quiet. And it's one one of those nights where it's just eerily calm and we're we're running out of patience. So for some reason Jeff had delegated me to be the 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 liaison. So he's like Of course. Because you're the one that, you know, gave him the liquid I, yeah, courage. I, I, I broke and I guess I brokered the deal. I'm like, so so Jeff looks back and goes, Okay, Matt, you need to go in there and tell him if he's if he's gonna seal the deal, he's gotta do it now and we gotta get going. So I go inside, and it's it's what you it's what you think you what you expect to see. It's like he's he's sitting in between these two girls. He's got a, a one on each arm, and he's oh got a couple gosh. of drinks on the table. And, and this is a mom and a, a mom daughter. and a daughter. Oh my god! So I'm like oh, Bob, and I start kind of doing the thing where I'm tapping my wrist, and he gets up and he takes me down the hall, and he's like, I'm like this close. <laughs> I'm like this close, man. It's so I'm so close, I'm so close. And uh, so I'm starting to get frustrated. So I we walk back out and I get back in the in the van. And now everybody's- what did you, is, is, you didn't drag him out of there? I just I said, come on, chop chop. Yeah. We're running out of time. Yeah. And then he's he's begs for a little more time. I'm I'm this close. I'm this close. So I go back out. I go back outside and I'm like, it's not happening. He's he doesn't want to leave. Uh, I don't know what to do. And out of nowhere. <laughs> I don't know where like we're sitting there in the dark remember eerily calm very oh, quiet no. night oh no Bob's inside he's got a mother and a daughter inside the house the car next to us starts out of nowhere now remember we've been sitting there for quite some time yeah right thinking it's... we are completely alone whoever was in that car had been in that car had not moved. It wasn't a remote start. No, there was a human being in that car who'd been sitting there just as long as us, probably longer, watching, watching them inside and watching us. And this was like some souped up muscle car. Like there was a, there was a game. There was a game that was real popular at the time called Twisted Metal. Yes. Yes. PlayStation game where you had souped up cars that would like, you would fight each other like a demolition yeah (laughs) that's all we could think was i'm like dude is twisted metal sitting right next to us and he's like he's like revving up and laying like gassing up getting real loud and he he's got like those under undercarriage lights like neon undercarriage lights and he backs up onto the street and neutral drops 
So he he revs the engine up as hard as it will go and then forces it into gear, which causes the the like the back tires to spin and smoke and then floors it down the down the road. He's making so much noise. He's just screaming. And the three of us, me, Brian, and Jeff, our hearts just start pounding. Like, what in the world was that? And what was he doing there? We've got more questions than we have answers. So Jeff turns back around and goes, you know, probably with some expletives, like, get him the F out of here right now. We're leaving. Because we didn't want to know who that was, and we didn't want to know what he was doing. Yeah. And then that, that, like, that faint engine sound off in the distance because you know when, when you're, you're the engine's flying away it's like ooh, and then you can hear ooh, like he's coming back so then we're like dude he's coming back and he just flies past us 80 100 miles an hour and he just keeps running back and forth down that street at high velocity that is obnoxious un- until i ran in and i physically grabbed the guy and pull them out with him still insisting, hey, man, I'm almost there. I'm like right there. I'm like right there. I'm like, you're not. You're not right there. And we're getting out of here. Twisted Metal is about to, like, I'm just thinking, Rip like, us in, in half, like, big like a giant can. robot arms are going to come out of this <laughs> truck and start beating on our, our old vans, tour van. Yeah. So he, like, on the third pass, we got. Bob out of there and we threw him in the back of the van and we sped away as fast as we could with no no knowledge. I think when I went in to get him, I think I remember one of them saying that it was a it was an ex-boyfriend or something. It was oh, that's just so and so. Like it was a jilted lover of some some sort. I was gonna say I was thinking a husband, maybe, but you know, somebody. But we were absolutely quaking in our boots and we had to get out of there and we have uh We've enjoyed the the details of that story very much over the years. That was seriously, like right now, that was 15 years ago, and I'm still, I can still feel that panic in my chest right now just talking about that. Because, you know, I've had a lifetime of experience since then to look back and just think how recklessly stupid that was. How recklessly stupid it was to go to a complete stranger's house in a town where we knew nobody. We didn't know anyone there. We didn't know who these people were. We didn't have a single contact anywhere. I don't even think I had a cell. Well, I did, we all had cell phones, but like we had, we were just sitting ducks. Yeah. Completely sitting ducks at that point. Oh just so God. recklessly stupid. So yeah. Um, that was a great, that was, I mean, I, I'm sure I could think of a million different oh, yeah. crazy no, stories. That, that's, that's, a that good, was, that's a really good one. That was so wild. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Yeah. That's a hell of a story. The, the bottom line is, yeah. uh, definitely, uh, you know, younger folks should definitely enjoy the fun that is being a touring musician these days, you know, like, um, phones these days could keep you so much more entertained oh yeah in the back of a tour van yes. than what we had i probably was reading a entertainment weekly magazine and you know like we have no entertainment but yeah. now like I, you could listen to podcasts you right. could watch netflix or hulu like yeah imagine that trip from tampa to new orleans today you how how you could occupy your time 
as yeah. opposed to just sitting there staring out the window, you know, eating a bag of chips. <laughs> so, yeah. I sold my guitar. Oh, man. So <laughs> did you ever reacquire a Schecter? No, I didn't. I did not. Does it stick in your craw? Like, do you do you want to get that guitar back? I mean, I wasn't like completely in love with it. You know, I mean, I I liked it a lot, but it wasn't. Um, you know, there was no like huge attachment to it, mm-hmm. other than the fact that you know I had to sell it for half of what it was worth. That's true. Because you know you're in a tight pinch. It's not like eh, I'm going to set up camp here for a few days and we'll see how much I can get for it on Craigslist. Yeah, I'm or just something. wondering. You know, this was a four-piece band, right? We were traveling as a trio at oh, the time. Okay. We were traveling in a minivan, and we so, were, we crammed all of our stuff in the minivan. I'm that just wondering, I had. why did you have to be the one to fall on the sword? Is well, it only because you had the extra? Um, well, I, yeah, I well, I was the you know, I was the leader of the band. You know, I just like Jeff yeah. and deconstructing Jim. I you know, I kind of managed well, things. So that's kind of, you know. What, yeah, I mean, yeah. I see what you're saying cuz mm-hmm. ultimately that was probably one of my one of the deciding or motivating factors for me to leave that band. Was yeah, that, I was going to say concept. what happened to deconstructing Jim. So, yeah. Um now some of this is speculation and conjecture on my part. Like me and him are friends and we'll always be friends and I love him very dearly. But I have my opinion about the way things were going, and I'm sure he has a different perspective or opinion about it. But from my perspective, at the time, this would have been the end of 2008 going into 2009, I viewed the project as becoming insoluble. Like we were sinking and we were never coming back out. And um, he was a great leader and a great manager. And there were times where he was making personal choices and personal sacrifice. He was taking extra hits for, from him for himself in order to make things work for the band. Like he would shoulder responsibilities, paying for gas to shows or recording expenses. And then he would say things like, I'll pay for it. And then when we go back out, I'll pay myself back like that. And I was having a really hard time constantly dealing with that and having that he never hung it over my head it's not like he was like don't forget about this bill like he wasn't like that he just i just felt like if we were gonna make it and i'm using air quotes like if we were gonna make it we would have done so based off of the success of the first ep or the first two eps or the first full-length record or with the return visits to some of the touring spots that we were hitting habitually we were going down to St. Louis three or four times a year. We were going to Champaign. We were going up to Wisconsin. We were forming all these friendships and making all these connections with all these different musicians. And I just didn't see the forward progress anymore. And I was making all these different moves in my life about possibly wanting to have a baby and wanting to settle down. And I wanted to, you know, buy a house. And, you know, I was doing all those like late into my twenties, going into my thirties life choices. And if I felt like we had successfully accomplished what we what we'd set out to do, then it would have been a no brainer to stay in. But I was looking at it like we're going up to Joliet to play at the bar that we've been playing at for the last three years, and we still have to almost 
twist arms to get people to come out in order to make it profitable for the bar to even hire us after three years. Like I have to call in favors to people or else we're not going to make any money. I'm like, after this long, I, I think it's just time that we quit. Like, I just don't want to do it anymore. It's not that I didn't love it because I certainly did. It was my love for the music and the people that kept me in it as long as I did. But at that time in my life, I was getting pulled into some different directions. And cover music was one of them. And I, I can't deny that. I was going to say, that not that around the, the same time that Black Cadillac yes. came to be? And, and I, 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 I want to say, you're talking about 2008, 2009, yes. I think. And we could have met before that, possibly. But I know for sure you and I met around that time um, when Bishop McNamara was doing that. What, what do they call it? MacFest? MacFest. Yeah. You remember MacFest? Do you I remember do. you remember meeting me there? You know? Um, where where would I have met you at MacFest? So I was in charge of booking bands on like I don't know if they I can't remember if they called it the family stage or it was the stage that was in front of this <clears throat> the circular part mm. uh, of Mac. And it was it was a it was just a trailer. Excuse me. <clears throat> it was just a like a semi trailer bed. <laughs> it was used as a stage. But I remember you and I uh had to coordinate on some sound gear oh. or something like that. Cause I think Deconstructing Jim or Black Cadillac was playing All right. in like the the beer tent so yeah, area. There was so maybe you don't remember that. And at the time, you were working for Musman. I was, and Kevin Musman, yes. was one of the people on the committee. I remember now. Yeah. So this would have been the year two thousand seven and two thousand eight. Now two thousand seven, they were both wildly different. The, those are the only two years that I recall that they brought MacFest back. Now okay. MacFest was it was it was it it wasn't their idea. MacFest had been a a previously ran festival many many years ago. And they had decided to bring it back, like just bring it back to life. So they ran it in 07 and 08. In 07, they took a huge amount of donor money and hired a bunch of Nashville acts to come up, including Lee Bryce of all people. Oh, it was Lee. Okay. They had Lee Bryce play on Friday night and he was just right on the cusp of breaking. Right. Right at that point, he had written a song for Garth Brooks and he wasn't allowed to talk about it. But he came and played MacFest and then like three, not even like two months later, he breaks. And then, for you know, he has this really successful country career. The Saturday night, they had a, the headliner was called Bombshell. And, and they were sort of a, a, a gimmicky, country band that had two like good looking blondies that were singing and they had a they had a, a line dance called the bombshell stomp i kind of remember yeah i do remember <laughs> bombshell okay yeah that's so, yeah. Uh, that, that's coming back to me now as they well. had a, they had a bunch of other acts too. i know lupe played one year. yes yes so um they had the family stage and then they had the main stage yes with the big production and then they had a little eight by eight beer tent stage and now kevin being the as resourceful as he is was like we want to spend all this money on getting this nashville talent but at the same time we want to get some of our local talent in this too so matt 
I want your band deconstructing Jim to play this event. And I'm like, Kevin, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> and he's like, I know your band is good and I want you guys to open on the main stage. And I'm like, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the, you know, going to bat for us on this, but yeah. we are not going to mix very well with our sort of uh, bombastic indie rock sound up against Nashville, Nashville <laughs> gimmicky country. Yeah. And he didn't care. He, he was like, I'm adamant. I want you guys to take the gig on the main stage. We're going to pay you. It's a paid gig. So we did it and we took it and it was, it was quite an experience. I mean, it was awesome. It was awesome to be able yeah. to play in front of the, uh, a big crowd of people and, and have that, that kind of fun and energy and, and work on that mega sound stage and all that it was fun, but really didn't, it, it, we didn't, we stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Yeah. And Greg Schneider was the entertainment. It was Greg. So it was Lupe first and then Greg. I remember that because that was another thing it was, is that Greg Schneider was Kevin's wife's cousin. So he got Greg to come down and play on the uh, on the little beer garden stage. And it rained like the Dickens that day, too. I remember that. Yes. It yes. just poured. Yes, I remember there being a lot of rain. It poured. Yeah. But then the following year in 2008, they tried it again. And they, they chose a different approach. Yeah, and I can't remember if I was involved that year or not. That was the year they had the silhouettes as the Friday night headliner. Uh, Does that ring a bell? <clears throat> Maybe I wasn't involved. Maybe I was just involved in that first year. But then there's an, an important distinction that has to be made here because technically speaking, Black Cadillac as a band didn't start until January of 2009. Although we were playing together at that time. We were just going by a different name. Okay. We were going by the name Guitar Hero Live. <laughs> oh my gosh. So you were selling yourself as... And I mean, Guitar Hero was huge at that time. So no wonder and why you went with that name. It's just, you know, this is just a, a, an interesting part of my life. It's an interesting part of my musical journey. Uh, you know, I was working with Jeff and doing the DJ thing and... um. At that by that time, Brian had quit. Brian yeah, okay. quit in like '06 because he got into a master's program at, uh, for school. He wanted to be he wanted to elevate his status as a teacher, so he got into a master's program and he couldn't balance it, and he had to leave the band. He's working full time. I totally get that. And then Trevor, same thing. He was like, "I can't tour anymore. I got this construction job." We all kind of parted ways. I moved over to bass. I started playing bass. I played bass for like four years. And we picked up Brennan Chenard on drums. Yes. So, but Brennan was an excellent drummer and he was, a, he was breathing new life into the band. And ultimately Jeff and Brennan have gone on and they still play together. Yeah. This is all these years later and Brennan is still Jeff's drummer. But at the time it was me, Jeff and Brennan. And working. I think, yeah, that at that time when we, MacFest was going mm -hmm. on that I, I remember That's, you were the bass player and correct. Brennan was playing drums. That was, that was the lineup at that time. Yeah. So, um, but me and Trevor, me and Trevor stayed in contact, you know, we didn't part ways, we didn't part ways with any hard feelings. And he went a totally, you know, he, he loved playing, uh, that, that the original music, he loved having the creative control and he somehow over the years got hooked up with some people 
up in the the sort of Will County Southland uh, music scene, and uh, he got into covers. I don't know exactly what his transition was, but at one point he started playing in a band called Spank. <laughs> was that like an '80s hair metal? I, don't I mean, know. it sounds. I don't know what their spank. I don't know what oh their. God. I don't know what their modus operandi was, but when he got hooked up with spank and started playing, I couldn't. I if I was in that band, I couldn't take my. I could not bring it to myself to. Hey, so you're in a band. Uh, what's the name? There's no way I could be like spank. <laughs> I'd have to say it like that. I couldn't just say, or oh, just, we're Spank. Or like, passing that along to your friends, like, hey, um, yeah. you want to go see Spank tonight? <laughs> like, But hey, I'm going to tell you something, all right? That band was very, very popular, okay? I never saw Spank play, but Trevor got hooked up with these guys, and they're, they're playing big shows up in the sort of Plainfield, um, Joliet, sort yeah. of, you know, York. I don't know if Yorkville, but like they're playing out out there and they're doing some big numbers out there. If you know, to my, to, if my memory serves me correctly, their lead singer just was like this sort of larger than life character. He had a big personality, he had a good voice and people just loved him. He was like this big teddy bear type guy. And you know, he just, he worked a crowd really well. And they, the, the music that they played was sort of edgy, hard rock. Like, well, buck, that's what I would expect. Spank. <laughs> like Def Leppard and Buck Cherry. Okay. Like but yeah. Yeah. At the time, it, it gave Trevor some experience as to how to work a cover band, how to manage a cover band in the same way that, you know, six, seven years prior, I'm learning how to just be in a band in general and how to do DIY uh, indie rock stuff. Like he was doing the same thing. Like he had ideas. He had ideas on what was going to be successful. And what was going to be like these breakthrough cutting edge ideas for a successful cover band. And he didn't stay with Spank very long because eventually he moved on and started making some connections with other people. And along the way, he gets a hold of me. And I, I, I wish I knew the date. I don't know exactly. It would have been like fall of 07 sometime. And he calls me up and goes, look, man, I'm doing some stuff with a band. Would you be able to run some sound? You know, I know you've got an engineer background. We have the equipment. We just need you to run it. I said, absolutely. He goes, two, 200 bucks. You help us load in, run the sound, help us load out and get you a few bucks. And I'm like, absolutely. And then he never calls and he never, he never hires me. He just questions me. But then that starts the ball rolling. Okay. So this, it's an important conversation to be had. He's testing me out to see if I'm interested in working with him. And then he calls me again and says, I got a better idea. And he, he pitches me like, like, it's, uh, like he's on TV. He goes, yeah. how would you like to make $1,000 a show? This is how he pitches me. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I mean, show up at a bar, have a lot of fun, and then take grand home. I'm like... A thousand dollars in my pocket. He goes, well, no, like two fifty a piece for four people, but for one night of work doing something you love. And I'm like, I mean, that sounds great. You know, you got to remember, like, I'm used to getting fifty bucks, two PBRs, and a pizza. That, that that was a good night. So this is a, in all the drinks you all the drinks you can drink and cash in your pocket. 
and he's like, I've got an idea for a band. <laughs> you give me a year working with this band and we'll be making a grander show with your skill as a singer and my connections. I'll get you a thousand dollars a night. And so I was like, sounds great. And uh, so I committed right then and there. I had one stipulation, which was that I really wanted to do the song Radar Love by Golden Earring. I just loved that song. And I'm like, if I'm going to join a cover band, we got to do Radar Love. So that, that's where GHL comes in because he is Mr. Networking. He's got all these great ideas. And he had this idea. He was like, Guitar Hero. Guitar Hero is hot right yes, now at the was. time. Yep. Everybody's playing it. He goes, well, what if I just spit? Oh, you're so all good. He goes, what if we showed up to a bar and played all the music from the games. Because think of the think of the amount of material you have to draw from. Guitar Hero 1, 2, 3, uh, Aerosmith Guitar Hero, all these different niche bands that have their own version. He goes, you've got all these playlists of songs, popular music. Not only do people know the songs, but they know the solos, they play them, and they're familiar with them. They'll get into it. And he sold us all. It was a great idea. And then... We started playing shows and people started showing up expecting to play the game. Yeah. Which is where we screwed up. <laughs> Seriously, I think it was probably three gigs in a row where they would see the, the the flyers for the show, Guitar Hero Live, and they're showing up with controllers going, where, where, where's the Guitar Hero? Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. We're, we're just a band that plays the music from the game. What? There's, there's no tournament? <laughs> There's, there's no tournament tonight. I mean, that's what I would have thought. Exactly. So <laughs> at the end, so from, from in 2008, we played like five or six shows, mm-hmm. maybe six or seven. I don't remember, but it was me and Trevor. And then our drummer was Carrie Ann. And then our guitar player's name was Gary. And then at the end of the year, we had decided that we were going to rebrand for 2009. Like we're coming up to 2009. We have to come up with a new name. We have to come up with a new logo. We're going to get to photo shoot done we're going to change everything because we're confusing people with this guitar hero thing it's not working so we did and i mean we had a ton of different ideas for bands and we settled on black cadillac it was a a song a, a, a name that he chose it was from a uh uh what's that band? modest mouse modest mouse has a song called black cadillacs and he just liked the imagery that it conveyed sort of a dark ominous mysterious vibe and he knew that it was he knew that we could market that so he was like we'll all dress in black and you know we'll play the certain he wanted a very very specific style of music he wanted a certain look to the stage and everything was all very very carefully laid out to how he wanted it and it worked it worked really really well because people liked the idea they liked the concept they liked the music uh it was edgy and it was different and uh, it worked. It worked really well. So we had a lot of good years of success with that with that band and doing that. So that's what a lot of people know me for. So it's definitely it's definitely uh, uh, some good memories for me. Right. <laughs> I mean, I know that so many people were like, "Oh, Black Cadillacs playing? I got to be." They were obsessed with you. Yeah. You know, uh, I remember here in Kankakee County. That's that's how it was. You were the big the big name, and it then- was yeah. I think it, it, it was a, a sort of a uh, an amalgamation of a lot of different things that all worked together at the same time. The female drummer was a big plus because she was very nice looking, but also a really competent player. She was very skilled. She was an old metalhead. 
So she loved to hit hard. She loved to play fast, smile and twirl the sticks that made all of our jobs so much easier. I basically just had to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, right. Our um, Gary ended up leaving after five months because he was running a business and couldn't keep up. And then we picked up Keith Wollenberg and Keith was just an absolute juggernaut on, on guitar. He just like, you know, Steve Vai, Satriani, Van Halen, just, you know, where you arpeggios across the fretboard, just that sort of um, guitar acrobatic stuff that just wows the, there's such a great show to it, you know? And then Trevor was also as smart as he was on the business side of it in terms of marketing and pushing the band, he was also a, a phenomenal player. And, uh, you know, he was, he was a sort of a stage dominating player when most bass players just kind of blend in. And he was like right yeah. out in front, you know, foot on the monitor, just bobbing his head. Like, you know, it was, it was, everything worked really, really well together. And so we had a really good run for a couple of years and, um, a lot of success. And then that ended what in the, Mid twenty, I think tens. I we played our last show in September of twenty sixteen, which was Mantino Oktoberfest. Yes, I remember that being your last one. That was pretty good night. Pretty I, there was a huge turnout. I remember <laughs> that. It was a lot. A lot of people. It was just you know. That's another one. You know, it's just a, an unforgettable evening. Uh, you know, I always, I'm always gonna love the Oktoberfest. Uh, it's. It's certainly the the best of the best when it comes to town festivals. You know, it probably competes with Merchant Street these days to be the best festival in this area, but they're very different. Yes. So I don't know if you'd really want to put them sort of head to head because there is sort of a, a small town charm that comes with um, uh, with Mantino Oktoberfest on top of the fact that it's very well attended and it's big, but, you know... Merchant Street probably still has a little bit of the edge because they're able to rope in a little more of the national talent. Yes. And they got a little more of the, the artistic side I was going to say it. It, more emphasis on art. But the, both both of those two are are probably the, just the two biggest and best festivals out here. But um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, the, 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 the why all of that happened in my life is is it's, it's way too long of a story to be getting into here, you know, but uh, I, I think it was the right choice in my life at the time. And when I look back, I still feel like it was the right choice to be made. And uh, I took a year off after that. I took probably more than a year off, like probably 14 months off. And there was a lot of changes that I was making in my life with the music and my family and there was some high points and there's some low points. And, you know, uh, eventually I missed it and I had to get back, you know, it was for my mental health and for my sanity and for my, my friends and my family, the people that loved me, like it was quintessential part of my life and my, my person to get back to playing music. You know, is um, if you're a performer at heart, and being a performer, whether it's music or any form of entertainment, if that's who you are, then trying to stifle that or suppress it for the sake of other people is not a smart move to make. You can do it. You can try it. Depending on how passionate you are about your creative outlet, it might work for you. 
but it didn't work for me. Yeah. I've, it really didn't. I've learned that as well. <laughs> some people can so. do that. You know, some, <clears throat> some people can just be like, I'm, I'm a singer, I'm a guitar player, but I have four kids and I love my family, so I'm putting my guitar away. Excellent. You know, and I, I chose for myself, I chose to try to find a balance between my happiness as a performer and my life as a parent and as a father. And that's what I do now. And today, you know, since 2017, when I came back, my life has been an effort to try to balance the two for the sake of my, you know, for me to hold true to myself and the person that I am and for my child, because she's 10 years old and I want her to know her dad for who he is, who he really is, and not just a broken man who put away the thing he loved the most in his life for the sake of other people. Like she deserves to know who I really am. It's something that I tend to struggle with too, uh, is, um, you know, being present, but also it's important not to sacrifice everything because they, your child also needs to see that you're more than just their parent, Right. You know, like, because you want them to, uh, ch chase after their dream too. Yes. So I think that's why it's important that we also go after our dream in a certain extent. We don't have to quit our day jobs, right? You know, you can still pursue your dream and have a, a day job, you know, um, or just because it's something you love to do doesn't mean it has to become a career. Well, certainly. And, you know, you know I, 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 could, I wouldn't even consider advocating for one or the other. Like I would never criticize anybody who is, a, is in the arts that chooses not to for the sake of their family. More power to you if that's what you want. Absolutely. Or at the same time, if you are such a dedicated musician that, you know, your, your three-year-old comes up to you and you're like, honey, get the thing away from me. Like if that's what, if that's what it takes for you to succeed is, hey, my, criti my, you know, my creative life is this important. I need to shut these kids out and, and rely on my partner to handle things. If that's what works for you, that's fine. Like for me, you know, I have a very delicate balance between my life as a musician and my family life, which could only happen the way it does because of my wife. My wife is the one who helps to make all of this happen for me. And through many conversations, it's, you know, she understands it doesn't, she doesn't necessarily agree all the time, <laughs> but she understands. And it, what works especially well in my life is the fact that me and her were friends for 10 years before we got married. She was a fan of the music. She would come to the shows. So I guess I vetted her long enough <laughs> to know that this is my life. She knows it's an important part of my life. Yeah. So, you know, she, do you have to book so many shows? shows. Like, there's those type of questions. And I'm yes. like, well, you know, you, you knew who you married. <laughs> yeah. But do you have to book so many? You do play a lot of shows. <laughs> and I'm always like, my God. <laughs> Yes, but you know, I, I, I'm not going to be able to do it forever. Number one, I'm not going to be able to do it at this pace forever. Number two, I'm not going to be able to do it for, for, for a very much longer period because it's very tiring. It, it's very like I have to take months off in order to rejuvenate to come back and play. You know, so essentially I have a small window to like 
shake the peach tree as much as I can to get as many peaches as I can because eventually I'm not going to be able to do it anymore and I'll be relegated to like Sunday afternoons at like the sportsman's club, you know, playing Bruce Springsteen songs with my arthritic fingers that don't even play anymore. Like then I'll be playing Freebird. See? Oh, I don't know if you could play Freebird at that point. Your fingers might not be able to handle it. A disheveled old man. Like, are you guys ready to hear some Rolling Stones? And I love the fact that, there is a sort of a, <laughs> there, like a is, there is a market for that. There's an old man league in this job, but yeah, you know the days of being able to be uh, able to stay up till midnight one in the morning and make the kind of money that you can make doing this are very very short. It's the days are numbered. I'm 40 years old right now, you know my best days are behind me. I'm 40. 40 pounds behind me at this point, you know, I'm waddling to the stage. So, you know, like I, <laughs> well, we could work on that. You know, we can go to the gym together. Oh boy. If I yeah. only had that kind of time, but yeah. Right. I have the same trouble. I'm like, oh, I need to go for a walk today. And I'm like, but I got all this stuff to do. <laughs> it's yeah. Usually making um, time, you know, I have a, you know, you were talking earlier before we uh, pushed the record button about how you got the neighbor that always pulls the barbecue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wafting smells of good smoked meats. I'm like, you indulge a little too much on that stuff. And pretty soon I'm like resting the guitar on my belly. Like, so, yeah, it's just I know I know in my heart that it's a finite amount of time that I have. And, And, you know, there's you only have people's attention for so long, too. You know, like as good as you might be at your craft, you're only going to be able to do it for so long. And eventually it's not going to be fun, new or exciting anymore. And I don't want to just fade away. I want to have the time that we have, enjoy the time we have, and then be gone. That's the plan. So, you know, and we'll see what other kind of projects come my way. You know, like the the project that we're working with, you know, the Southside Social Club is Absolutely. And it's a, it's an amazing operation with some super talented musicians. Probably, I mean, some of the best that I've ever worked with. And I've done so many gigs in so many places, but these dudes are just, they're so talented. And that's what, that's what gets me excited these days is being able to work with really, really good players who are driven. They're motivated. They work so hard. Like that's what what I'm talking about with this job is set the expectation, set the goal for yourself and then bust your butt and then earn it. So when we get offered shows that are like really good around here, you know, when, when, when a, a town festival says, would you like to be our Saturday night headliner? The biggest opportunity that you can get around here. And we say, yes, I always go back to them. I got, text messages to prove it. Like I go back to them and say, be very proud that we're here, but don't forget that you earned it. You earned your place here, that nobody handed us anything as a band. Like we are constantly working to get to these places. So yeah, try to pep, you know, motivate the boys. You know, <laughs> you, as you, I mean, you put it perfectly. I mean, the, the, everyone, Ben, Zimmy, everyone, uh, well, Carol as well. Eric, yeah. Eric, yeah. Um, Eric is, I don't know. I love all the guys. Yes. They're all really great guys. Um, it's, it's like a fraternity. It's, it's, 
It's working with uh, really good friends that just happen to be really motivated in the same way that you are. But it's at the same time, there it's like we're just buddies, you know. And it's a it's a unique balance to have that. I'm I'm sure there are other bands in this area that have that same vibe, where like you show up to play a show and you look across the stage and you're like. These are my guys. These yeah. are my buddies. I would hang out with these guys even if we put the guitars away. And for most of my life as a musician, I've had aspects of that, you know? Like Jeff and Brennan were great friends and we did hang out. I didn't have so much have that with Black Cadillac. We all were very friendly and stuff like that, but we didn't really have much of a social life outside of the stage. But this is, for for the longest time, I have not had this type of experience where like, We'll have a weekend off and be like, you guys want to come over, put some meat on the grill, have a couple beers and yeah. and throw the bags around. Like we hang out on and off the stage and I hope. Hence the name. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I would hope that that translates, you know, like you would think that that would translate to a crowd to be like, these guys are very comfortable with each other and they're having fun up there. And if you can, if you can come to the show and see that it's a very, very fun for us to do it, then hopefully you can have some fun with us as well. And that's, that's the key Yeah, right there is have fun with us. Cause we are having a blast. That's if I've, I was always told in multiple different forms of entertainment I've done is if you're having fun, then the audience is having fun. If you're not having fun, then the audience is not going to have fun either. <laughs> so absolutely. You know, that's, absolutely. That goes true with with so many different all forms of entertainment you know yeah it's so. it's just a, a, a comfort thing you know like like if if you're not comfortable holding a baby and somebody just puts a baby in your in your in your arms it's probably gonna cry the baby's gonna sense it he's yeah. gonna be like i feel this threatened yeah. i don't this is yeah. i'm in your arms you're not happy i'm mm. not happy we're not mm. happy but like <laughs> if you can if you can express that sort of passivity and comfort to that baby, that's what we're doing. As a band, we're like taking you in our arms and we're going to rock you Cradle. like this. <laughs> and we're just going to have some fun with you. But it's, it's, it's all about making you comfortable with the process. You know, that's what it, and you, another thing too, since a lot of what we've discussed here is, you know, the pursuit of original material and the pursuit of covers and the difference in the, the dichotomy. A huge difference between the two. You know, with D-Gym, it was all creativity, all original, and we would pepper in a cover once in a great while. Black Cadillac, zero original material, exclusively covers from start to finish. We never wrote. We never, we never wrote together. We never worked together in that sense. It was a decision that was made right out of the get. It was like, we're, we're not going to try to win people over with some sad, droopy breakup song. We are literally just going to come rock them. When I took the time off, I kept writing because I've been a songwriter my whole life. And that was one of the sort of um, prereqs in order to get back into the band, which is something that everybody in the social club agreed immediately to. But it was like, we got this project. I want to do this. We've got ideas for songs to entertain a crowd, but we're also going to be doing original material. Yes, I'm in. Like, no hesitation. I think that's because every member of Southside Social Club has written original music in mm -hmm. another band, if not multiple bands, Certainly. or on their own. Yeah, and I think it was just, for me, it was important at that time in my life, I needed to nourish my soul 
with more than just bar covers. I, it's not that I have I have nothing against them. I, I enjoy having fun and doing it, but I needed that little extra edge in order to keep me interested and pull me back in, you know? And so we would learn a couple of songs and then we would learn one of mine and then we'd learn a big swath of covers and then I'd stick another one of my songs in there. And so all along the way, that's the way we've done it. We get up into the lab and we'd be working together and learn a ton of covers. And then I'd be like, okay, let's talk about this song that I wrote. And then it's, it's really, really cool for me. Cause I have a, I have a vision in my head about how I want things, but then as a songwriter, you got to like, let them. It's hard to let go of that, yep. that vision. It's, it's, it's just placing your piece of art into somebody else's hands and letting them kind of play with it. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, like, so I would write something and with a guitar and then hand it to them and say, I, I want it to be kind of like this. And then I'd have to take a step back and let them figure it out. Let them take it where they wanted to go with it. Then this is a four bars of solo. I'm thinking something up here, but do whatever you want. Zimmy, I'm thinking it's kind of a driving beat. It's like three, four, something, maybe a little snare roll, but do it however you want, you know, and just look at them and be like, you know, Eric, this is the bass. I'm thinking it's like a little thump, a rump, a pump, pump, pump like this and maybe a little up on the neck. And then, hey, just take it wherever you want. Like, just let them kind of carve out their own path. And then the, the products were, were excellent. And I'm like, these guys are helping me be a better player because they're taking these songs that I wrote and just elevating them to a new level. And it got me more excited to be like, okay, well, here's some more. Here's some more stuff, you know, like here's some faster upbeat stuff that a, a crowd would like. Here's some slower introspective music that's just a little different, you know, and no matter what it was, these guys were just gobbling it up. So it's it's been that part. It's probably been one of my favorite aspects of working with these guys. Is, Has there been a plan to record any of these songs? Oh, <laughs> see, that's because like as as for me, like that's what I love is being able to you know hear the recordings of these original songs. True, you know, like that's the billion dollar question. Is yeah. Well, if if you're having that much fun and it's going, they're going over, they're going over at the at the bars. Well, why why not get into a studio and lay them down? I'm like, it's that's the thing that we you know that's sort of the 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 ceiling where my head just keeps bumping into the ceiling all the time. Like, this is what we need to do. Like, we have completed enough original material to do like a five or six song EP if we wanted to, or an LP or or what or QP. I don't know what 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 the what are the P's. I don't know what we're doing anymore. A long long play. <laughs> Right, so LP, I guess it would be a, and what's then, an EP? Is that extended play? I think that's extended. Or is it play. SP short play? I don't know. These are these are terms to use for actual records. <laughs> but the point is, like, there's there's uh, material there, and you know, I've got so many buddies that do studio work, and there's, yes, you know, and obviously home recording has improved so yeah. much over the years. It's just a matter of. Doing it. it, yeah, that's just and with the bit, you know, the busy schedule, it it adds a whole nother element to the band. So I can understand why it hasn't happened, but but I I'm just saying that you have my support. <laughs> is what I'm saying. So. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> I just need somebody to get a torch and just stick it right on my butt. Oh, I can do that. Light a fire. I you can, know, I'll just... just head down to Ace real quick. I'll be right back, Matt. You just hold tight. 
So yeah, I mean, it is. It's ever since ever since we finished the roadmap. The roadmap was probably the first song that we did as a band where I felt like this has got some this has got some potential. Like I felt so confident with the roadmap when we when we did it as a band that when we played Merchant Street back in 2019, we we kicked off our set with the roadmap. That's I'm like, awesome. it's, it's got enough energy that people would probably hear it and think maybe, maybe this is like somebody else's song. Yeah. And I so just don't, I have just haven't heard it. So we <laughs> finished it. And I'm like, that was one of ours. Yeah. And then we, we jumped into, I think we went to like, you know, Hall and Oates or something like that. Mm-hmm. But like we, we, we came out of the gate screaming with one of our songs. That must've felt so good. I, there's video that Lupe took a video at the time uh-huh. and never told me and never showed me that was in 2019. He sent it to me about a month ago. And he <laughs> That's goes, so Lupe. I know. He, goes, he does that stuff. I found this on my phone here. Check this out. <laughs> and it's like a 30 second video of right at the end of the song. And you can see me. I have, I'm so excited that I'm literally jumping up and down. Wow. Jumping. Yeah. I'll, sh- I'll show it to you after we're done. But yeah, yeah. it's like it's to me. It's, it exemplifies just how excited we were to be part of Merchant Street. Yeah. Because it was just so, it was such an exciting, an excitable feeling to do it. Like there was so many nerves. And I'd, I'd already played Merchant Street twice at that point. But to be able to do it with these guys in the way that we did it, in the, the way we made it there, just made it a totally different experience. Yeah. And I remember being so nervous. That like I I, I I couldn't even drink like I could yeah. like I was I was t- I was backstage with a cold beer slamming wasn't doing a thing because I had such nerves such nervous energy and they're like what's wrong with you I'm like I'm just I'm so nervous because <laughs> I just wanted it to be this I wanted it to be this this unforgettable night for us to be able to do it together and it was it really was it was because we still talk about it and we talk about what we did and how we did it and you know everything changed in the next year and a half, you know, with, with restrictions and things getting shut down and the big festivals being canceled and all of that was like a wet blanket on our lives as musicians. But prior to that, man, we were, we were on this, we were on this high. And I it agree. Was, it was everybody. Mm-hmm. It felt like we were on so a high. Pre, so. Pre-COVID life was, was so much different, you know, and, and having to, having to like endure, uh, working through the pandemic as musicians and try to try to be excited and try to try to keep your music fresh and, and frankly, try to even play shows, you know, like during the height of things, we weren't doing anything. There was no gigs. Nobody even wanted to play. Nobody wanted to take the risk or the chance to play. Like, well, what if we played out in this beer garden? Like, yeah, I mean, I guess, but do we have to, do we need to? Yeah. How safe is it? You know, like there was so many questions. But now it sounds like we're yeah. getting into the endemic. I keep yeah. hearing that word more and more. So I'm, Ben was right. Yeah, I'm ben, hoping. <laughs> ben told me two months ago that Omicron was the end of COVID. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then he sent me a link. He sent me a link to a story. And I'm like, oh, Omicron is the end. I got you now. Yeah, yeah. Thank God. Mm. So, um, so now, yeah, starting to get back to gigs. Yeah. And, uh, 
Well, one thing, I gosh, I, I feel like we could talk for another two hours. <laughs> like we literally could because there's so many other things we have. Oh, I covered. know. There's loud. We missed a lot, but that's okay. Because um, like another thing we haven't, like we've talked a little bit about, you know, writing original music, but yes. not like we could get even more deeper into that. But I, at least I wanted to um, hear at least one or two songs, yeah. you know, if we could. Sure, sure. If like, we could do that. You know. I, I certainly have, have have evolved a lot of my sensibility as a writer coming from some really, really humble beginnings, you know, not really understanding much about the writing experience coming from three chord punk music was like the my first inspiration. A lot of 50s and 60s doo-wop and soul music was all big inspiration for me as a songwriter when I was a teenager. So it was very simplistic back then, you know. My love came from up above like a turtle dove in the sea of love. Like it was all right. Everything had to rhyme. Sure that yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything has to rhyme. And it's like, does it make sense? No, but it rhymes. <laughs> she was my girl. She was my whole world. Like, yeah. Like I, I, I went through all those patches in my life. And then, you know, while I was up at Columbia, I took some creative writing courses, which definitely helped to sort of refine my ability to uh, write within what, what a lot of, creative writers refer to as your mind's eye. So it's like the, 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 the ability to perceive what you're trying to write and at times kind of see outside of yourself because so much of songwriting is first person narrative. You're basically just telling the story that happened to you in your life. And there's so much more to this songwriting experience than just being like meet girl, get dumped, write song. Like there's <laughs> yeah. so much more to yes. it. Yes. And so, you know, I've, I've gone through a lot of phases in my life and there's been creative peaks and there's been creative absolute craters of no creativity at all. You know, droughts, writer's block. I'd go years without writing. And then the synapses would start firing again and I would become inspired again and I would start writing again. And then there would be just like that. It would go blank, like a blank slate, you know, and you cannot hold your hands to the guitar and force it. You can't force no. it. No. Yeah, you got to strike it when the fire is hot. Yeah. And you know, and when it's there, you got to keep going. So like I I would develop some sort of kind of concepts along the way. Like that one of the songs that I wanted to play tonight was a conceptual song that I wrote a couple years ago, but to understand some of the content at you know, cuz it is it's not necessarily first person but it deals with an interesting thing that happens in a lot of people's lives. Um, I was a married guy in my 20s. And then in my early 30s, I wound up getting divorced, which happens. And um, I kind of resigned myself from the idea of dating because I'm a married man. What do I need to date for? So I found myself thrust into this world that I was completely ill prepared for at a time when I hadn't been on a date in a long, long time. So I had to kind of relearn how to uh, approach women and, and I had to kind of relearn how to make that connection in a world that had changed drastically since the last time I had to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what I found in my thirties was that like the people had basically just built these impenetrable force 
you know, force fields around themselves. And there's so much casual, there's so much of that casual stuff going on that um, it was hard to make a connection. I had a really, really hard time. And it's because of those shields. <laughs> That's <laughs> why like, all the casual stuff was, was going on. But it just, you know, I, I, I started seeing this repetitious pattern of starting, like the laying, laying a little bit of the groundwork for what could be something. And then it would, you know, you'd like start laying a little bit of a layer and then poof, nothing. It would just vanish. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that wasn't going to work. And then you'd start a little bit of the groundwork. And in the get to know you, uh, the get to know you uh, stage, stage, yeah, yeah thank yeah. you. <laughs> <Drawing up like laughs> no, that's all right. And that get to know you stage, you, well, you know, I've been hurt. And well, so have I. So haven't we all? We've all been hurt. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, what happened to you? Oh, you know, I, guy broke my heart. Well, you know, it's okay. I understand. Guy broke your heart. So now you have like a 40 foot wrought iron electrified fence around your heart and you're not letting anybody get anywhere near you. And so how do you expect me to make the connection when you have built this fortification around the emotional, basically your emotional needs are protected. So uh, conceptually, I refer to it as the guarded heart. Like you have this guarded heart and it made things very difficult for me because I was coming from being married and I would be very direct well, I like you. I think you're very pretty and I want to take you out on a date. <laughs> and then afterwards, I would like to talk to you on the phone. Like I I would get nowhere for, for a long time. And I'd be just thinking to myself, I'm a musician, I'm a cool guy, I have a good sense of humor. Like why, why am I just repeatedly whiffing at the ball, striking out? Because I don't know if I just had the wrong approach or because I was like – trying to pursue these guarded hearts that weren't they were their emotions were too well protected from being hurt i'm not going to be messing around with you little musician man because i've dealt with little guys like you and i'm not even going down that road so run along now go sing your songs so <laughs> yeah that's kind of what is in you know my wife was one of these people she was most definitely a guarded heart and it took her taking a chance on me before anything to happen. Cause and you know, it, it was, it was never going to work the other way around. She had to eventually let down her guard a little bit and take a chance. And so that was the only way it was able to work. So I wrote a song about that concept, the concept of the guarded heart. And it's, it's just told from a lot of different perspectives and the basis or the inspiration for it came from a lot of different places. But uh, you want me to grab the guitar? Yeah, go okay. ahead. Yeah, let's do this. So we what's, good? Yeah. So it's is it called Guarded it's Heart? Called, it's called Guarded Hearts, plural. Okay. So the song's called Guarded Hearts, and yeah, it deals with uh, uh, the situation that some people find themselves in when they're when they're put out into that world unexpectedly. So this is Guarded Hearts. Another person who's dealt with the pain 
so much heartbreak. Love in lies turns into fear and to shame. This invisible fence, she won't let me in again. But I try and I try cause guarded hearts their love is so strong there's no better place to be than in her arms look in her eyes the touch of her skin I know we're both afraid to let someone in to wait they just run right away to the next thing that numbs the pain but I'll wait yes I'll wait cause guarded hearts they'll do many things but they won't get hurt again and every person But how can I reach her when she won't give me the chance? Me and her, we are the same. I know she's been hurt, but I won't just give up. I won't take the easy way. This so strong there isn't a better place guarded hearts their love is so strong I won't let her get hurt again thank you <laughs> I mean you're used to having an audience clap for you right oh that was beautiful I Thank love you. that. I love that song. I love the concept behind it too. It, it's definitely something we can all relate to. Right. And and dating in your 30s, I mean, I of course, even dating in your younger days, you can encounter that. But I feel like in your 30s, that's pretty much everyone. Yeah. You know. Well, I think for, for younger people, they've got more time and less experience and probably willing to give more of a chance. Right. Whereas, for you know, and, and this might be more relaxed as you get older. Maybe into your 40s and your 50s, you don't give a crap Ooh, that's, yeah, I was, yeah. It seemed like, for me, prior to being married, I just, I kept running into a really similar pattern of people that just was like, I've dealt with too much crap. If you're not exactly what I need, exactly what I want— I'm not going to give you the time and, or, or I just was not able to do it. Or I think, you know, a lot of people were probably just overtly concerned about the musician side of things. That's just on me. That's on me as a person. Yeah. But well, um, they're right. 
there's that stereotype. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I just, uh, it was a, a, definitely a source of inspiration for me. Like I just, during that time, I wrote a bunch of different songs about different things. Well, this has been, gosh, this has been amazing. Oh, well, thanks, um, man. I've had a, yeah. I've had an absolute blast. It's, it's an honor having you here, especially considering, you know, you've listened to the podcast yeah. and so it. it means a lot to Thank have you. your support and kind words. And, and now to, to add you to the amazing list of people that have been on this podcast. So, well, yeah, keep up the good work, man. It's, it's a very, very good podcast. I, I've always enjoyed uh, your perspective on things and, uh, you know, moving the interviews along really well. And uh, you got good cadence. And, um, yeah, man, you got, a, too kind. You, got a, you got a really cool thing going here. So <laughs> I just wanted to say thanks for letting me be a part of it. Cause of course. It's, it's been a really, really fun How time. How could I not? You're, like I said, you're like the troubadour of, <laughs> of Kankakee County. So how yeah. could I not? But, um, yeah, any, any, like, what do you want to leave people with if... I don't know if you want to plug any. What's the easiest way to, for people to find you on social media? About, yeah, you know, you I'm, know, Southside gigs yeah, or for sure, or uh, even just solo gigs, obviously too. Yeah, you can you can find us on our website. You know, uh, there's links to the website on our Facebook page, and uh, you know, we we've been off for the last two months. We did a wedding last weekend for some people in Mantino, um, and then we're gonna get back at it. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be around. We're going to be in Piatone and Kankakee. But really, the 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 brunt of what we're going to do as a band is coming this summer. This summer, we've got a really great lineup of music. It's just it's just going to be an unforgettable summer for us. So definitely uh, want to keep your uh, eyes peeled for shows that we're going to be doing. Uh, we're going to be running into a lot of friends this summer. And, uh, you know, we as a band are like super, super committed to bringing we're, we're not the status quo. You know, we're, we're, we're kicking things up and a notch this summer. You know, we've been off for a while. We've, we've all been in this sort of COVID fog for God knows how long. And once we get these shackles off and get back to life in a semi-normal fashion, with $5 gas and a war going on, we're going to have a blast. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. I know I've been seeing all these memes online. It's like, uh, you know, showing like the Simpsons, you know, there's like, uh, they show, I think it's Bart with a chair and he's Putin. Oh and yeah. Then, yeah. And then there's like Homer, he's supposed to be summer. You know, like our normal, He's finally to, having a normal summer and about yeah. to hit him. <laughs> yeah, about to hit him. But, but yeah. yeah, you know, as normal as possible, right? I mean, there's always something going on yeah. in the world. But it's um, going to be, it's going to be a great year for music, for live music. You know, we, we had a little taste of it last year. You know, some of the, uh, some of the, uh, uh, regulations were kind of lax last year but this year i think it's going to be the gloves are going to come off and and we're going to get back to uh, business as usual and hopefully uh have a really really good summer that's what awesome. i'm hoping for i'm excited for it hope to see you out there man yeah i, I need to finally go to a, a i'm gonna put it on my my uh 
my bucket list, my summer bucket list right now is see Matt Yeager, uh, see a solo show. See a solo so, show? Yeah. You got to get into the, because we never even covered all the other rules. No, we didn't. There's a bunch of other rules. <laughs> oh my gosh, we didn't cover all the other rules. Well, at least a, people know the the main ones now yeah. for when they come out to a show. The, la- and... the last rule is don't yell Freebird. <laughs> yes. Says, I book, love these rules, man. It says, don't yell Freebird. I get it. You're hilarious. Yeah. That's what it ha, says in the book. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Uh, I love that uh, that having those rules. That's that's great. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> you come up to the solo show, and then you can get the, get in the books. Yeah. You can dig around a little bit and find some songs. That would be amazing. You'll love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again, Matt. No problem. That concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a neighbor that you think might enjoy learning new things about the people and places of Kankakee County. The more we share this podcast with new people, the more we're going to grow. Also, a special thank you to our patrons for helping make this episode possible. That includes Jake Lee, Jesse Arsenal, Dave Barron, Daryl Damper, Samantha Rocknowski, Lake Iverson, Jake Vaughn, Travis Garcia, Jane Bostwick, Don Harrison, Simon Topless, Scott Wright, Carrie O'Connell, Jamie Race, Eric Olson, Jeff and Rosa Carroll, Teague Dreenan, and Sandy and Steve Twait. To become a podcast patron, go to kankakeepodcast.com and click on the Patron tab. If you pledge $5 or more per month, you'll also hear your name announced on every single episode. There's also other rewards like early access to episodes, commercial-free episodes, podcast merch, discounts on live podcast events. There's even a reward where you and I can grab some coffee and go to the Kankakee County Museum together. Your monthly pledge is truly appreciated. Our goal currently is to reach $400 per month or more. And this is going to help us launch our new YouTube series that I'd like to start doing called Kankakee Podcast Out and About, where we actually take you to some of the coolest places in Kankakee County. And you can see them instead of just hearing about them. So please sign up for our patron program today at kankakeepodcast.com. Our theme song is by Lupe Carroll. 